0: Five, four, three, two, one. Bazinga. Bazinga. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Now Showing podcast. I'm your host, as always, Sam Hooson. I'm joined once again by my co host, Lewis.
1: Hello, it's me again. I never know what to say in this part, but hello. <laughs>
0: Are you excited once again to to hear the word co-host attributed to you. That you're still getting over that honour.
1: Yeah, it's 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 wild to hear that.
0: <laughs> it's wild. Today we will be looking at three films. We're we'll looking at Fargo, the 1996. Is that right? Yeah, uh, Cohen brothers um, black comedy crime film um, about uh, the the uh, series of unfortunate events that happen in the backwater in uh, Minnesota. We'll be looking at three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, which was a 2017 film directed by Martin McDonagh, which looks at a woman who is dealing with uh her daughter gets raped and killed uh, and the police aren't doing anything about it so down the line she rents out three billboards outside ebbing missouri as the title describes uh to try and convince the police to uh, start by kind of insulting them in on large billboards and we'll also be looking at nomadland which is the 2020 oscar-winning best picture uh um, about directed by Chloe Zhao who of course um you are a super fan of uh, Lewis um yes. and Nomadland is a uh I guess you could say drama. It's a kind of faux documentary about um, a nomad, a woman who is uh, found. You know, her she's widowed. She uh, her town stops existing due to a, a, a factory being closed. Uh, she starts to drive around uh, America in her van, and the F- nomadland follows her travels and the people she meets. Now, there is something linking these three films, Lewis, and what is linking these three films?
1: Frances McDormand she is at the center of all three of these films and these are the three films for which she won her three lead actress Oscars.
0: Yes so we'll be talking about not only we're having a special uh, look at Frances McDormand's performances in these films and talking about how you know whether she deserved the Oscar maybe you know like how good her performances were Um, but these are three you know very different films but three films that of course are all Joined by a very strong performance and central performance from Francis McDormand. Now, of course, um, you've been a Nomadland fan account for some time. We talk about this every time you come on. Last three times we've we've, we've talked to you. We've talked about your love for Nomadland. Last uh, episode was the Oscars podcast, which, of course, there's an awful lot of talk talk about Nomadland. Um, So, you know, we've, we've got to have you doing your, your usual shtick with we're talking about how much Nomadland is, is, is great and that. But we also talked about, in a previous episode, how Fargo is one of your favourite films. So I don't know, we'll have to see how you feel about Three Billboards, but this essentially is going to be a podcast where you're going to try and pitch me into not hating your, uh, your favourite films, I assume.
1: Uh, yeah, that's exactly what it's going to be. I love Fargo. <laughs> My feelings on Three Billboards will remain a mystery until we get to it. But as mm. everyone is aware, I am the biggest fan of Nomadland and this podcast will just be me just monologuing about Nomadland for as many hours as I can go.
0: (laughs) I was thinking that... Maybe perhaps outside of guests, maybe the Oscar uh, nominations reactions we did with Will Mavity or perhaps the episode we did with um, Josh Webb, but this will probably be the first time in a normal episode that I will speak less than someone else. It's always me dominating the conversation and Jordan's just kind of in the background going, yeah, yeah, I thought the cinematography was nice, yeah. So this, this time I actually might speak less than someone, which is, I guess, uh, an exciting uh, concept for any of our... Um, London phobic listeners, um, so I haven't seen Fargo and I haven't seen Three Billboards. I've seen No Land. I watched it um, in a build-up to the Oscars a, a few months ago. Uh, and I do plan on watching it again in IMAX when it's released. Um, but yeah, so I am completely new to both Fargo and Billboards. A lot of people would be surprised by that. Um, I'd actually never seen. Any Coen Brothers films before we did a Coen Brothers special a few weeks ago or a few few episodes ago with uh, Jordan, where we looked at um, the Big Lebowski and No Country for Old Men. Are those films you've you've seen both of those films?
1: Um, what was the first one again? Sorry, uh, the Big Lebowski. Uh, yeah, I have seen both of those films and I like those as lot as well. <laughs>
0: Yes, and we were both big fans of them. I was especially a massive fan of The Big Lebowski. I thought The Big Lebowski was absolutely excellent. I thought No Country Old Men was, was cracking as well. I gave that an 8 and I gave Big Lebowski a 9. Jordan wasn't so fond of The Big Lebowski, uh, but maybe that's because his small brain doesn't get the comedy. Um, but yeah, so I'm obviously very new to the Coen Brothers, so Fargo is another one going into there, and Three Billboard Stars, a great cast of characters that I'm happy to see. So we'll be going to that in a minute, but we'll start it off. You know, Just, just straight up, how, how are you doing, man?
1: I'm I'm not bad, thank you. I'm excited to get into these three films. It's been a good week watching three of films that I like very much. Uh, for this, it, it I'm I'm good. How are you?
0: Yeah, I'm uh, I'm doing well. Uh, my week has been dominated by films, but my week hasn't been dominated by these films as much. I, I kind of had to pack these into the last couple of days, but I guess we're gonna we'll go straight into the, the what we're watching because I could waffle on about me being annoyed about football or whatever, but who cares? <laughs> and We'll start off with what we're watching, uh, and I. Uh, Lewis, have been watching in the cinema room downstairs with a whole host of my flatmates. We've been getting together every night uh, after the football, uh, or if there's not football, uh, kind of 10 o'clock every night. And we've been watching on the big screen, each one of the Harry Potter films. Ooh. Um, so, at today we finished Harry Potter and Half-Blood Prince. Uh, so tomorrow, which is going to be Friday when recording, it, we're going to watch the last two. We're going to watch Harry Potter, the Deathly Hours part one and part two. But until then, we've been watching one every day. Um, so all week I've had something to watch. Um, and have you I'll, ever seen um, them before? I, yes. Yes, oh, I have. Right, yeah. I, I, I saw them when I was... yeah. I've probably seen the Harry Potter films a fair few times in my life. I, I right. watched them a lot when I was a kid uh, and I've read all the books and... I'm a big Harry Potter fan. Uh, I'm not, obviously there's, there's the art, artist thing, J.K. Rowling, not a great person, but I can't pretend that I don't think, uh, you know, a lot of people complain about her, uh, her writing and being all childish and stuff. I don't have an issue myself personally. I think it's, it's a kid's book. It's exactly what you want. I think, you know, that the, my problems with the woman do not continue to the medium. I think the films are very good, uh, but I haven't seen them for maybe six, seven years. So I'm coming at them with already in a perception of how good I, and which ones I like and which ones I don't like, um, but that perception that hasn't been tried, especially since I got into film. Um, what was your opinion on Harry Potter? Are you a Harry Potter fan?
1: Um, yeah, I am a Harry Potter fan, and I'm a, I was actually in the same position as you. I hadn't seen them for years up until last year. They all got played at Odeon last year, um, and oh. I, I went to see them all. Like I think they played one a week or one a day, and I went to see them all, and that was a, a mm-hmm. fresh new perspective. And... Um, I do really like them. I like the films. I don't like the books anymore because I hate J.K. Rowling too much.
0: <laughs> but yeah, say so art artist. Um, but did you read them when you were growing up?
1: Yeah, I have read them before. Um,
0: so you were a fan. Yeah, you're, absolutely. You, would yeah. you say you're you're a fan of the books? You're not a fan of the writer?
1: Um, yeah, are you um, yeah. yeah. I don't like the writer so much so that it has affected my feelings towards the books i understand it hasn't for most people because people separate art from the artist but for me i can't read the books without thinking of her and i hate her so much that i can't enjoy the books anymore uh, but i still if, enjoy uh, the films
0: i, I think I, I i've had to train myself to separate the art art and artist over the years being a smith's fan you know, oh, if yeah. I had to deal with the concept of, of thinking about Morrissey every time I listened to the Smiths, I would, I would you know, I had to stop listening to him a long time ago. And I guess also having <laughs> Seven being like one of my favourite films, having to see Kevin Spacey in that, you know, ain't great. Yeah, that's but, true. Um, unbelievable performance, though. Just, you know, not a great guy, I guess. Yeah. Um, But with the Harry Potter films, I'll say that, like, some of my perceptions did get uh, changed. Um, for example, the the biggest example... I feel like we need to do a Now Showing episode on Harry Potter at some point and and talk about our actual thoughts on each film because I know there's so much to say about it and I could really do a full review of each one and I have been actually, if anyone checks out my letterbox, Sam Houston, I've been giving full, long reviews, which I don't usually do on letterbox, of of every film. The first ones were quite short but especially the last few I've been giving my detailed thoughts on each film Uh, but I was really, really shocked at how good the Goblet of Fire was because my opinion was always the first two were a bit shit then... The Azkaban's excellent. The last one's excellent. You know the rest of them. You know they're pretty. They're pretty damn good. What I've actually learned is that *Goblet of Fire* has absolutely blown me away by a distance. The one I enjoyed the most. I mean, I mean to say distance. You know the difference between a nine and a ten in Azkaban and Half Blood Prince. also being a nine, but Half how *Goblet of Fire*, man, I just couldn't believe how good it was. It's hilarious. It's so well shot. It's absolutely beautiful as is Azkaban. Uh, it's really dark at the end. Um, it's just it's uh, such he's one of the, the perfect blockbusters for me Goblet Fire, uh, you know, watching it back um, and I'll say that even though he's only in it for 10, 12 minutes towards the end, Ray finds puts in a performance yes. at the end of Goblet Fire that is perhaps one of the yes. best performances I've seen with someone with such a short amount of... A bit. I mean, he's great in the later films, I, I haven't seen them yet, so i have to see them back but Specifically at the end of Goblet of Fire, I was absolutely blown away by, I was watching an absolute artist, the way he carries himself, it's not all, his line delivery and, and, and you know, he's his, his fighting, it's, it's how he carries himself, his mannerisms, his small movements, he's like a, a beautiful perfectionist, like a ballet dancer, dancing around the scene, just putting the the right amount of effort in, it's just, absolute joys to watch i couldn't believe how good it was and i just got to say goblet of fire that that's got to be the big big plus so far uh of the harry potter series i've still got two to watch that i haven't seen but yeah they some of them are better than others i think chamber of secrets is a bit of a dud i think all of the phoenix is kind of okay um you know still you know, seven out of 10 or whatever but yeah, yeah. just uh goblet, i'm just i'm in love with harry potter right now man
1: i i will tag on to the end of that and say that's very peculiar because when i did my rewatch i had the opposite feeling and i harry the goblet of fire went down in my rankings and i liked it a lot less than i did when i was a kid uh, but really. i will absolutely agree with you that my favorite sequence in all of harry potter is the end of goblet of fire with Ray Fiennes when voldemort like comes back to life that is the best sequence in harry potter he is perfect in that role and in that scene it's just perfection and i completely I got a bit agree teary
0: in that i got too bit teary there when when there's the when there's you know after the end of that and there's my boy my boy and rock and i was actually getting a bit teary you know from from yeah. you know it's not like one of the moments that people think about being teary in harry potter you think of i'm not gonna say certain big characters dying towards the end um and events happening yeah whereas that one's not really known as that, that much with Tiger. i was getting a bit teary i thought it was just excellent so a big big plus. um but yeah what have you been watching
1: uh i've actually not watched that much this week but i did watch the mitchell's versus the machines the new sony animation studios film that came out um and that was a a really big well it wasn't a surprise because they have a great track record now they just did spider-verse and uh and now they're coming out with mitchell's versus the machines which is great uh i don't know whether i prefer it to spider-verse because i have an attachment to the characters from spider-verse because obviously it's spider-man and miles morales but um as an original story, this is one of the best animated films ever. Um, It's so well made. It's so well animated, so creative. The characters are so well written. uh, And the story is completely not what I expected it to be. I have to say, I haven't seen the latest trailer that they released for it before it came out. I just saw the trailers that they released in the cinema and I really kind of dismissed it as a phone's bad children love technology far too much kind of film. Mm. Um, But then within the first sort of 10 minutes of watching it i was like no it's so much more than that and it's so well made and the the performances are so good and the characters are so well thought out and it is so funny and there are so many so many cool details like during the credits as well i've seen loads of people sharing screenshots of the credits because the credits have loads of easter eggs in them and it's just that kind of effort that most studios wouldn't even think of putting in and to see Sony go from me, I know everyone's pointed this out this past week, but to see Sony go from the Emoji Movie to <laughs> Spider Verse to Mitchell's versus the Machines, that is a redemption arc. <laughs> that is yeah. the best redemption arc of the studio ever. They have gone from one of the worst animation studios that made just horrible rubbish that was purely for. Have money. you actually seen the Emoji Movie? I have. It, funnily enough, the Emoji Movie was the last film I ever saw in. my favourite cinema. My favourite cinema was the AMC cinema in Manchester and it closed down a few years ago and the last film I ever saw in it was the Emoji Movie and I've regretted making it the last (laughs) film I ever saw ever since because it was horrible. It was a horrible experience.
0: (laughs) Of course, cinemas... And I can use this to segue, I guess. Um, And and, uh, the cinemas will reopen, which we will talk about in a second. Um, But uh, the last film I saw in the cinema... Was Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four? So even though it's not a memory, it's always going to last. Like you and and your favourite cinema, I can say it's not exactly a great night to go out. What was the last film you saw in the cinema before they closed?
1: I think it was Wonder Woman eighty four as well. I watched it. I had um, I made the conscious decision to make it Wonder Woman eighty four. I think, I think it was Wonder Woman eighty four, or maybe it was Psycho. I can't remember. I'll have to double check, but um. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, no, it was definitely Wonder Woman 84. Very
0: different films. I know, yeah.
1: <laughs> it was definitely Wonder Woman 84 because I remember thinking that I wanted to that to go out with a bang. I wanted to watch a film that I thought was just loads of fun and it was ridiculous. And I really enjoyed Wonder Woman 84. Really? So I thought, I'll just watch that because it's loads of fun. It's a nice, easy, fun way of ending the year and ending the foreseeable future of cinema trips. So that was the last film I saw in cinemas.
0: I frequently record podcasts, and as I am doing today, the same day I watch a film. Um, and that has got its positives, and I, I like doing that. That's the way I prefer to do it, to watch them just before, because I like to have them fresh in my head, and I can remember specific plot events quite clearly. But one negative is the lack of uh, distance and the lack of time and, and the way to mull things over. Um, and often I do a review that I find in a few weeks' time is the different to my real thoughts. Now, is it that my thoughts have changed when I haven't seen the film? I'm talking also about rewatching it, just the moment I think of it. Is it because my thoughts have changed? Is it because social media and, the, and what other people thought of the film drags down my opinion? Am I being led? Or is it because... I've really gave it time to breathe. Uh, but one of them is, is one of the I thought, which I gave a really positive review. Not really positive, but a uh, generally pretty positive review. And I've since come to think of as pretty shit. Now, I wonder if that's because I think it's shit, and I've just thought about it and gone, I was in denial, I wanted that film to be better than it was. Or was it because... Um, you know, uh, you know, was it because uh, you know? Uh, am, I, am I thinking it because it really was bad, and I've let it go. chance to breathe and I thought it over, or is it because everyone says it's bad, so I think it's bad? I, I'm curious. Yeah. I, I, want, I, I That's not an answer. I, I, I know, but I feel like I thought I thought Venom was quite good, and then I went and I was talking to some, and then I um, and then I. Was everyone hating on it. Venom's awful. Venom's awful. And I was talking to my friend Amy, who I went to go see the film with. A few months later, I said, oh, Venom's shit or whatever. And she was like, you like Venom. You thought Venom was really good. We well, watched Venom. Venom was good. And I was like, yeah, actually, I did. I guess I did. I just, everyone told me it was bad, so I believed them."
1: Yeah, I know maybe, what you mean.
0: Maybe Wonder Woman isn't shit.
1: I think, for me, I have a really bad case of recency bias, where I watch something, and the fresher it is in my memory, the more I like it. And Wonder Woman 84 is one of those films that I know, if I watch it again, I will realise that it's shit. So I don't want to watch it again because I had a lot of fun when I first watched it. But like that happens to me all the time. Like I remember watching mank and I got to see mank in the cinema and before it came out on Netflix and I came out of the cinema and loads of people were like mentioning me on Twitter, like what did you think? Was it good? Was it good? Because it wasn't on Netflix yet. And cinemas were closed in many places. And I was like, mank is a masterpiece. David Fincher's best easily best picture winner. It should win everything. And then like a week later, i was like it's not even his top five i'm not a huge fan of Mank. i like Mank, but i'm not a huge fan of Mank, and that happens to me all the time
0: the, i'm assuming my new mutants review is absolutely cursed for the same reason because i gave that a really positive review and i don't feel strongly about that film <laughs> but then again maybe part of it is because everyone tells you it's bad so you think it's bad yeah um but I, I've I've put my foot down and kept some of my controversial opinions. Like, for example, thinking that Rise of Skywalker was good. Or, for example, thinking that Dark Phoenix was good. I've kept my foot down on that one. Not I love it when you watch a film and you think it's good or think it's, it's, it's very it's very good, but you don't think it's amazing. And it stews over in your head and you're thinking about it three months later. And you're like, wait a second, that film was actually really good. And you watch it again and then you realise how good it was. Like That's happened a few times for me where it's like, I've watched it, I've thought about it loads afterwards. It's like, I know when I rewatch it, I'm going to think it's great. Like, being John Malkovich, I watched it, I thought it was very good. And then a few months later, I was still thinking about what happened in it. I was still talking to people about it. I was like, it was actually way better. Watched it again, confirmed it. Fucking masterpiece. Yeah. You know, that happened a few times with Blade Runner. I was like, watched it, I was like nine. And then I was like, thinking about it. is it a nine? Watch it again, it's a ten. So, it's the reverse of it, I guess. The You know, the opposite of recency bias. Uh, baby teeth better on second watch, but let's get into the review in the film, shall we? We're going to, So, today we're doing a little. I'm just going to call it now showing these films, but it kind of is a, a Frances McDormand special. So, Frances McDormand is. I'm going to give her. I'm going to go briefly through her Wikipedia page and tell you, everyone, that she is her real name is, of course, Cynthia Ann Smith. I don't know why she's changed that's that's a very different name. Um, uh, oh, because she was adopted. Um, she is. An Academy Award, Globe, uh, Golden Globe winning, BAFTA winning, Tony winning, Emmy winning actress. Um, who she's, a f- she's a Grammy away from an Egot. She's a Grammy away from um, an Egot. She's known mainly for her performances in the films Transformers, Dark of the Moon, Madagascar 3, <laughs> um, A Streetcar Named Zaya. Um, she isn't a film. Um, <laughs> She's she's been in an awful lot of films. She's been considered one of the greatest actresses of our age. And she's been rewarded three times, of course, as I've just said, by the Academy Awards, most recently coming in Nomadland. So I think it's safe to say someone that's a big fan of Fargo originally, you're already a fan of of Frances McDormand before you watched Nomadland.
1: Yeah, I was a big fan of Frances McDormand. I remember when the Fargo TV show first came out, I watched that. And I didn't know that it was based on a film or based, loosely based. Um, And I went back and watched the film and I was like, whoa, Frances McDormand is amazing in that film. And then literally like the next year, Three Billboards came out and I watched that and I was like, whoa, she's really good. And then I went back and watched loads of her filmography and it's like, she's really good. And then Nomadland came out and it's just another one of her great performances.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so she... She's three for three with with Best Actress nominations and wins. Um, but I'm also going to mention something that I didn't know myself, which is she's actually been nominated three times for Supporting Actress, none of which she's won. So she's three yeah. for three in, in Actress and zero for three in Supporting. Yeah. She was nominated for Mississippi, Burning, Almost Famous, and North Country. Now, I have only seen three films of Hansi McDormand in them, and they're these three films. Uh, actually, I technically... No, I think I might have seen Transformers, which, like, isn't, she's not like known for that, and things so like you know. But yeah, that's not one of, in
1: That's not really a Frances McDormand film, is it?
0: <laughs> of course, of course. Um, but she's so she isn't. Am I right saying she isn't in the Fargo TV series, which is kind of loosely based on Fargo? She's not in that, is she? Uh,
1: she's not in it. No, she might have a cameo, but I don't think she does. But she's definitely, not definitely not a main character.
0: Okay, okay. Just, just.
1: If she is in it, it <laughs> it's a blink and you'll miss it cameo because I don't remember it.
0: Okay. Okay. So we'll um we'll go chronological order here and we'll start off with Fargo. Um so as previously stated um or, or I'll give I'll give my intro to Fargo. Um so um William H. Macy is a car salesman who is having money troubles. Uh and he decides he hatches a plan um to get two criminals um who are played by Steve Veshemi and Peter Stormer Stormare, um to abduct his wife the kidnapper's his wife uh in an attempt to get his wealthy stepfather to pay out the ransom uh of which he will take the large sum of uh, to get him out of financial troubles so you know he's kind of faking his own uh the the kidnapping of his wife uh his wife is unaware of it his stepfather is unaware of, it, of course the only people that are on on it are him uh the criminals and their kind of middleman um that that, that they both know him through um now the uh as this starts as as, it, as this begins as this um pl- plot starts to unfold um certain things go wrong and i don't think it's a spoiler cuz it's so early on um but uh early on some um crimes uh, some uh, murders committed by the criminals which um sp- like which sets off a which which gets a pregnant policewoman played by Frances McDormand, uh, into the fold and she begins to look at the murders and it's kind of a a situation where you've got this of two separate stories that which kind of have the same uh, link with Macy and dealing with the the criminals and with Frances McDormand trying to deal with the case. Now, do you think that was a... did they make any mistakes there?
1: No, that was a pretty solid description to be honest.
0: Let's go, man. Let's go, man. Um, Of course, uh, this is directed by Joel Cohen um and produced by Ethan Cohen, um and Joel Cohen, Cohen Stanley is the husband of Francis McDormand. I believe that was the case at the time as well. Um, so there's obviously a connection there, uh, and it's set in rural uh, Minnesota. Um, and so it's kind of famous um, outside of just the film itself. It's famous for its depiction of the uh, mid. Like central US accent and their very strong Minnesota voices and the snowy exterior. Uh, this film was obviously uh, cinematogra- the cinematographer of this film was Roger Deakins of course one of the most acclaimed cinematographers um, ever to do it. Um, and I just want to we'll start off um, I think we'll start off all three of these reviews with you um, because it makes my job easier. And <laughs> we'll start off by saying do um, you love Fargo? Yes. Why do you love Fargo?
1: I love Fargo for so many reasons, but my main reason is I think the Coen brothers set out to make something that was so different because originally they wanted to shoot it completely with a static camera. They never wanted to move the camera. They just wanted to have it pointing at characters who'd speak and then they'd cut and then they'd point it at someone else who'd speak and they never wanted to move the camera because they wanted mm. to make something that was completely unremarkable in the way that it looked um but that was logistically impossible so they still moved the camera but if you watch it and pay attention the camera rarely ever moves it's very very static and very very still so that means that the way that they framed it is so important so much more important than in most films because they had to worry about what was in every frame how much information they'd convey in a frame because they didn't want to convey it with moving the camera and they set out to make something that was so not cinematic and they even describe it as their least cinematic film and i think that in trying to make something uncinematic they made their most cinematic film and i think mm. they let especially because the the setting of it as well with the snow they don't have a wide color palette it's just white You know, all of the landscapes are just white. Um, And they really had to find the remarkable in the unremarkable. And they did. And Roger Deakins did it as well. This is one of the best looking films ever. Um, And it it looks so interesting and compelling. But when you think about it, it's just, most of it is just a white canvas with things dotted in it. And the amount of effort that they went to, to make it look interesting because they didn't want to move the camera and they had no, like, colours to play with. And all of the well, snow... And they, the snow... Sorry, go on.
0: Well, I was going to say, um, you know, spoilers for my following reviews of all three films. Um, but no matter any flaws, I'm going to pull it out, out in all three films. And, of course, all three films do have flaws, you know. It's yeah. very hard to make a perfect film. Uh, but despite all the, any flaws they have, I am... You know, gonna say here, I am going to praise the outstanding cinematography in all three films. Uh, maybe three billboards, perhaps, maybe not as, um, you know, claimed historically as as the likes of of Fargo. Um, but I thought that film had stunning cinematography as well, and I will talk about that in detail in my review. Um, but all three films, uh, really joined by excellent cinematography, and I think, um, Fargo's cinematography done, of course, by Roger Deakins, um, and he's, you know, probably one of the only kind of semi-household names in cinematography. Um, yeah. especially after 1917. Um But there's so many You know, I guess in a way I don't know, it's it's the the It's it's interesting what you say about the the not moving, which I, I guess I didn't actually consciously notice. But I did think a few times, like, these are really interestingly placed shots that perhaps you wouldn't see usually. Um I guess one of the most outward examples is a scene in which you can see two events happening at, one, at the same time where um Francis McDormand's husband is eating dinner yes. eating breakfast while she's walking out the door and That's one okay. of my favorite scenes. It's just a it's an excellently placed shot it's and so good. It, it it looks so good and anyone that's seen the film will know that this and and I always love it when you know when you know something to if there's any way to make me Sam Houston like like a cinematography, it would just be to to do that to just place multiple things happening say, in a large wide screen or whatever. Like they do it quite often in Jojo Rabbit. There's like three scenes in there where the kind of the people move around the the a static scene and different events happen whilst the the camera's the same rather than yeah the typical track. Um and and in just a few times here where I know it sounds like yeah, that just looks very very attractive and a lot of the. Um, you know, you talk about the the color palette being so white um and in it in it kind of it's not within the whiteness that the the beauty shows but it's the fact that the, it's so lined up well that it makes the you know the difference the car driving through the person standing in the thing the, the red blood looks so shocking it's something that is so normal but the contrast it creates it's it, it does create for some absolutely beautiful cinematography in a film which could easily have been boringly bleak
1: yeah And just to go back to that scene again with Marge and her husband, when she walks down the steps to go to the car and he's still at the table, the way that they linger on that shot, if you watch Fargo all the way through and you pay attention to the tiny things that you eventually do once you've seen it several times, whenever, I can't even remember his name, which is awful, but whenever her husband is in the frame, she's in the frame with him, he's never alone in the frame. They're always shot together. Whereas William H. Macy's character... Is very, very rarely in a frame with other people. He always shares a frame. He always is alone in the frame. He very rarely shares a frame. Even with a conversation, they'll have the camera right in front of him so that he's alone. But when he's talking to Marge, the camera will be over his shoulder so that he's still in the frame with Marge because she is never alone in the frame. But William H. Macy is always alone in the frame, which is another thing I'm talking about with the effort that they went through to frame these shots is so unbelievable that they even thought about things like that and it's so well done. Like you don't even notice it that's the good thing about it. You don't notice it until you're paying attention to it and you only pay attention to it when you've watched it about five times.
0: Right, yeah. So, other than cinematography, why do you love Fargo?
1: I I also love Fargo because the The plot is so convoluted and so, but so like interesting to follow like it's a, a real exploration of morality and how people's morals play into their actions and how people's morals affect where they are like at the start of the film <clears throat> Marge is in bed with her husband and she's a good character who has good morals.
0: Her husband is called Norm Norm, that's it, Norm
1: thank you. So at the beginning of the film the first time we see Marge she's in bed with norm and then because she's a good person who has good morals that's where she ends the film the last time we see her is in bed with norm and they're hugging one another because she has a happy ending because she's a good person but then mm. all of the other characters like william h macy obviously i assume that we're doing spoilers this is a film from the 90s so
0: yes yeah okay we'll go for spoilers I, I assume spoilers here for fargo yeah
1: um but his character obviously ends with him being arrested and not getting anything that he wanted or needed. He's in prison. That's how he ends his character. And then Steve Buscemi's character, he ends up being killed because he's a horrible person who has no morals. But then the sidekick, I'm awful at remembering characters' names, God. The other sidekick who still kills Steve Bucemi, he ends up being... Oh uh,
0: Yeah, that's... Um gare is his name in the film oh yeah he ends up
1: yeah but him (laughs) he ends up being captured by the police and arrested because he was just kind of doing what he was told he didn't choose to make any of these decisions he just did what he was told so he's not as bad as steve Bucemi because steve Bucemi was leading the way do like leading them through all of these bad things whereas he was just following the orders um And it's an interesting exploration of how your morals affect your life, to me. That's how Mm. I interpret it. And I don't know There is
0: a... There's a very Coen Brothers... I mean, I've only seen three Coen Brothers films, um, as I I just said a minute ago. Um, But I, I, I... I often talk about my my mum on this podcast because she's a bigger film fan than I'll ever be. And, and I always said to her, you know, Fargo, I'm going to do Fargo or whatever. I mentioned to her, I'm going to watch Fargo. And she said, oh, I've never been a massive fan. I always thought it was a little bit overrated. Um, and, I, and I called her up afterwards and I talked about Fargo and we said about our thoughts on it. And I said, well, we watched The Big Lebowski together and that's about a man who fakes their... fakes. Um, there a abduction a kidnapping for money, and we watched and I've we both watched No Country for Old Men, and that's about the moral decisions around s- trying to uh, uh, get a briefcase full of money. The Coen brothers just make the same film over and over but in slightly different vibes. They're like, <laughs> yeah, okay, we're going to make the. That we're going to get the money acquisition film here, but we're going to do it funny. We're going to do this. We're going to do another version of that funny one, but this time it's going to be slightly less funny and a bit more serious. And in the snow, um, <laughs> they're very much a strong Coen Brothers feel. They they are yeah. kind of obsessed with this concept of decision making and how small changes to plans and small events affect the wide narrative. That butterfly effect seems to be an obsession yeah. of, of Fargo, of, of Fargo, of uh, the Coen brothers and their kind of the, the the way almost all of their films seem to be going. Of course I've not seen that many but I am aware of the plots of a few other films and I've heard other people have the same, I guess you could call it criticism, I guess some other people could say style I guess, you know, people get annoyed at Martin Scorsese for making similar films but that's his style but yeah, yeah. it's a very Coen brothers feel and the fact that it's another specifically fake um, kidnapping, much like the Big Lebowski and a, <laughs> and a money acquisition moral, moral tale.
1: Yeah, that's what I, I love about the Coen Brothers, and I think they do it so well. Their screenplays are always so smart and quippy, and I think I think Fargo should have won Best Picture, and I think it should have won so many more than it did, but it won Best Screenplay, and I don't think anyone can deny that it had the Best Screenplay. The dialogue is so funny, but so dark, and so interesting, and the way that they explore these themes of morality, like you just mentioned, how one small decision, one small thing that they do has a domino effect and will affect things up and all the way down. Like, you know, yeah. that, uh, being pulled over by the police when Steve Buscemi's character gets pulled over by the police, that sets the plot of the whole film in motion. If that didn't happen, then the film would have gone to plan and it would have, we wouldn't yeah, have a film because yeah, it would have yeah. gone to plan. Um, but that one small thing that happens to them sets off this butterfly effect that affects everything in the film. And I think that's, that is something interesting that they deal with a lot in their films. And I know you mm-hmm. said you've only seen three, but you're right to have picked it up on only three because it does happen in almost all of them. That same exploration of small decisions have big impacts especially with dealing with morality like with no country for old men it's slightly different because javier bardem's character is the one who judges your morals and he decides whether or not you live he decides your fate um and and you know whereas with fargo it's like the the coen brothers are deciding what happens it's a reflection of their morals like they believe that marge is a good person they believe that that's what makes a good person, so she has a good outcome, she has a good story. They believe that, um, what's this, Jerry, they believe that Jerry is a bad person, so he has a bad outcome. And it's a reflection of their morals. And I, I think that's a really interesting way of, of making a film and projecting your ideas and your thoughts into characters and into a screenplay and into a film, ultimately.
0: I think my kind of review in the. No negative parts. Some is kind of to put it into a big ball would be to say, I really admire what they tried to do, and I really understand what they were going for, and I admire it. However, I did not necessarily always enjoy it. There, this film consists of a number of extremely, extreme, unbelievable, insane situations. Right, there's a couple events throughout the film towards the start towards the end that are insane mad things happen you go and then it's linked together by the doldrums of normal life and i that's obviously a conscious decision it's very slow for the majority it's kind of a roller coaster boom 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 big event and then a lot of just someone watching tv or um francis mcdormand's character marge um, going to lunch with a character, or her waking up in the middle of the night, and then it, boom, it jumps into the thing. And whilst I understand the technical merit and what they're trying to go for, and to create this kind of this is what life is like kind of thing, where this even throughout this insanity life goes on, and whilst it's trying to be authentic and it really does hit there on authenticity, I did find that it was at points jarring at points made you question what the point of the scenes you were watching were and at points perhaps I wouldn't say vagued into boring but kind of became a slightly unnecessary. I was like, okay, I'm watching another scene where this isn't gonna matter and it's like perhaps I didn't feel the same issue with the Big Lebowski because it's a film that is so full of jokes that yeah. it was never... Even when it calms down, it still was very funny. And also there's this thing in The Big Lebowski where these insane things are happening and you're, the main character, who's constant throughout, is trying to just get back to normality. So when you go back to the, the boring and the doldrums, it's almost like a breath of fresh air, like, oh, thank God, finally the dude gets to do what he likes. And then, oh, he get thrown back into it. Whereas this, it's not you know a character being that's being thrown about. It's events that are happening. And, and I personally felt like that that... On a a personal level, never really ticked me. I was kind of, the point was like, there's points where, you know, the absolute biggest insult would be like, this is a bit of a nothing. The first half an hour, for example, where I was like, "Uh, you know, there's an awful lot of entertainment here, but then I had a a five minute scene with Stephen Shemi talking where I was like, this was just okay. You know, I I, I don't know if you can see where the criticisms come from, even if you would disagree, that, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I definitely understand those criticisms. I do think that Fargo is a very slow film and it, it, It is one of those films where you're either, if it's your thing, then you'll love it. But if it's not your thing, then it'll just be like, eh, I kind of get it. I don't really get it. Mm -hmm. So I do disagree with the criticism. I think that every scene is, like you said, that there's one scene where she goes for lunch with a friend and that doesn't really impact the plot. And it's like, yeah, it doesn't impact the plot, but it teaches you about Marge, who Marge is as a person. And I, I love those moments in films. And I know a lot of people don't, but I love those moments in films where the plot takes the backseat so that we get to know the characters um but i i, think I do understand people thinking yeah. that they are a bit slow and unnecessary so i do understand I th- those criticisms yeah
0: i think that um i'm not saying that i want films to all be snap 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 um but yeah. there's the thing it was like I think, and I'm happy for slow-paced films, and I like a lot of slow-paced films. Uh, and But the thing is, is for me, it's the justification of it. It's that if I felt that character development was important, I maybe feel so a bit better. If I felt it was particularly over-entertaining, I think. But there was, where I never really... That, there was that scene with the... when that, that that scene with the, the the kind of very sad character, and whilst I appreciate what they're doing, it never really superly landed with me. I never thought this was out really hilarious, or I never really learned too much about Marge. Um, I will say that I guess there's a, that in that sense. Um, if you didn't like Fargo for that reason that I just said, you there's a good chance you really won't like Nomadland. Yeah. Um we'll get onto that in a bit. Uh, of course. Um, but there's obviously a lot of criticism in of that being super slow, and what's the point of these scenes, and what we're we watching, and all the other thing. Um, and this is a, a toned down version of that, of course. Um, but yeah, there was. I will say, for me, the particular strong point of the film, and of course, the cinematography is excellent. That's that's the first thing that, you, that, that I'd noticed. But I will say that performance wise, I, I think Steve Buscemi, for me, you know, that was really what stood out here. And I turned out, I thought. I've got problems with the film and it wasn't necessarily completely my cup of tea. However, I can't deny I thought Steve Buscemi really stood out for me personally as th- that was a cracking performance from him. I thought Steve Buscemi was absolutely excellent. And the standout, even in a film where another actor won uh, an, uh, an award, Francis McDormand. Uh, for me, you know, Francis McDormand, great performance. I'll talk about that in a minute. But I thought Steve Buscemi stole the show.
1: I I can definitely understand that. I do do disagree. I think William H. Macy stole the show for me. I think because I was always very surprised to find out that this is a film that won lead actress because Marge doesn't show up for about half an hour. And the film isn't particularly yes. long. So I was surprised that she was nominated and even more surprised that she won for lead actress. But William H. Macy was nominated for supporting actor when to me, it's definitely William H. Macy's film. It's definitely his story. It's definitely Jerry's story. And I think William yeah, H. Macy certainly. gives the best performance. I think he uh, captures the nervousness of Jerry and the complete, like, fish. Is it fish out of water? Is that the phrase I'm thinking of? Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Um, the completely fish-out-of-water vibe that you get from Jerry, I think no one could have captured that in the same way at that time other than William H. Macy. I think he does it perfectly. Um, yeah, and I can't I think complain about his He all. was the the best performance and he stole the show. But Steve Buscemi was absolutely fantastic, and I do agree.
0: Um, it's funny how he must have read the script, you know, and then they cast him and gone... They just call me uh, funny-looking and short all the time. Like you must have to. Be like, I guess I. Yeah, I guess I'm used to it. Was, yeah. In um, the same way that I feel about the way that, that Peter Dinklage must feel when he read the script of Free Billboards, um, <laughs> which we'll get to then. Um, yeah. One, but I will say uh, you actually touched on something that I was going to talk about, which is Francis McDormand's um, performance as Marge Gunderson, and comparatively an unbelievably affectionate performance comparatively to the two I have to sit for from, yes. from McDormand after. It's, it's kind of... Um, it's jarring to see her show emotion in the, in the, the, the normal sense comparatively yeah, to the positive emotions. So, yeah, exactly. She's <laughs> so bitter and uh, in Free Billboards and she's so kind of almost gaunt. She's almost um, you know, done. In, yeah. in nomad land um in in this uh you know she she's yeah, you know very much in love she's in pregnant uh she's pregnant at the time uh with the pregnancy do you, I'm, do you know this uh, is, was she pregnant in real life and that's why they made the character pregnant uh
1: no she wasn't it was a fake pregnancy
0: it was a fake pregnancy okay yeah. just uh just curious um, uh, what well, a fun fact mentioned... about the
1: pregnancy the uh the pregnancy bump was filled with bird seed and Frances mcdormand left it in a trailer overnight once and it froze and because she had a pregnant belly on she also had fake boobs on and the night after the pregnant belly froze her boobs her fake boobs exploded in the middle of a scene <laughs>
0: why do they not leave that in <laughs> um oh, that's funny uh yes so um i was so actually for that reason that... it's a 10 out of 10 I was going to say that. Oh, um, yeah, it's very interesting. And I was going to suggest about the she won best actress for this, not best supporting actress. And without thinking, of, yeah, perhaps yeah, definitely would be Macy's as lead actor. But you know, obviously, you can have films where people have an, an act, actor and you know actress. But I thought that that Frances McDormand certainly was the supporting role here. I did feel like yeah. she certainly isn't, and, and that's not obviously a criticism, but purely a plot thing that she is not the most important character in this film and I do not think that she drives the narrative. She comes in late, she you um, know she, she she's reacting to the events of the other one. I, I would say comparatively this performance is not that of um you know, if you're looking at the performance, it's not... If we are comparing this to another film we've talked about in the podcast, No Country Old Men, also the Coen Brothers, have similar plot. This isn't this is the performance of Josh Brolin. This is the performance of Tommy Lee Jones, but slightly yeah. expanded on. There's a very... I thought this, I thought she's playing... Tommy Lee Jones is playing Marge Gunderson in No Country Old Men. Hmm. Or, you know, it's the same kind of thing of the much kinder, um, kind of reactive uh sheriff um that is you know dealing with the events and she's kind of the she is us throughout the plot she's the the good character she is the you know the the morally you know thing that the tell me just doesn't do anything wrong in that film yeah where even josh brolin as the good guy does um and i guess some people you kind of are rooting for macy as well throughout the film yeah, I don't know. If you, I don't know if, You're rooting for Macy. You're rooting for yeah. He's so like well. an
1: anti-hero. He's like Walter White in Breaking Bad. He's a horrible person, but you root for him.
0: He's not as horrible as well. No, he's
1: not that bad. But you know, he's, he's not, an anti-hero. No, he's
0: not as horrible as he turns out to be. Yeah, in retrospect, if everything went well, he's not that bad I mean he's bad but he's not like that bad but then the yeah. way things turned out it makes him look a lot worse so he even though you know uh, the way that Bro- Brolin steals the money if you're replacing these characters these characters uh, with you know William H. Macy is Josh Brolin's character Francis mm. McDormand is Tommy Lee Jones' character and I guess in that means that Steve Jemmy I guess is Javier Barlem's character um, yeah But yeah, Frances McDormand, she's excellent. You know, she is really, really good. And Mm. um, I, I, you know, the way that the the accent is so funny and the accent is so well done. (laughs) And the the phrase Minnesota nice is used to describe this. And Mm. the way the mannerisms and the thing is are so kind of cute and like realistic. And the dialogue between her and Norma is is very good. Um, and, And so... You know, despite the fact that I think it's a smaller performance, you know, in terms of, of of kind of if you had to put it into a box, it's not in any way a weaker one. I think that she's very, very good, and one of one of the, the the other positives about this film, yeah.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I think she's fantastic in this film. As much as we both agree, she's not a leading performance and she doesn't steal the show. I think she is just amazing in this performance. The way that she deals with this dialogue and the way that she does it with. Uh, an accent that is funny, <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. the way that she makes it normal as well, and she captures the humanity of Marge and the, the she's really the normal person in the film. Everyone else is so crazy, like you. No one has ever met a Jerry or uh, the Steve Buscemi's characters, um, but everyone knows someone like Marge, just that nice person that cares about people. Um, she's really a stand-in for the audience, and the way that she does that so naturally and so well. She really did like deserve all the praise she got.
0: This is copaganda. Yeah. Um Yeah. I guess we'll kinda of wrap it up there because we've we've got to talk about the other two. And we've got especially put uh, emphasis on on no Man Land, which is you know the film that got released on Disney Plus this week, so it's yeah. it's in it's topical. Um well last week at this point. But um Fargo, as uh, I say, it's. I admire what it tries to do at every point, um, but I perhaps just don't feel the connection to it, and that is maybe one of the reasons why I'm going to be harsher in my rating than perhaps uh, some people I think in. It's, it's clearly a very good film. Uh, mm. Just the way that the... the uh, I admire the tone, and I uh, say so I like what they're trying to do, but it's the narrative, uh, sh- you know, the pacing shift uh, felt perhaps jarring uh, maybe at some point it didn't connect to every character as much as I would like to have done um, but you know so it, it, it kind of ends out. I still think it is a strong film and I would recommend people making their opinions because it very much I think some people will love it a lot more I can see why people love it um, for me I'd probably give it about a 7.5 out of 10
1: that's still positive that's still decent yeah I still
0: decent. Seven, seven and a half. I gave it a three and a half on, on that. Book, I got so, hate for yeah, that. Seven, seven and a half. Yeah. Okay, what about you? I'm assuming it's is it a ten?
1: Uh, well, before I do that, there are two things that I want to mention specifically from Fargo. Of, of course, One of which is the score, which is fantastic.
0: Yep. One of yeah, yeah. One of yeah. my
1: favourite scores ever. And the, the person who scored it, Carter Burwell, who also scored three billboards, uh, didn't even get nominated for it. And I just think that's a travesty because it's one of the most iconic scores ever. It's fantastic. And I just wanted to give a shout out to him. Of course, when so he listens to this, they, he uh... will appreciate the shout out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> interesting that um, it's, it links our two films, eh?
1: Yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? He's a longtime collaborator of Francis McDormand and the Coen brothers. so And Martin Madonna, to be honest. Uh, and the other thing is one of my favorite shots in cinema ever. It's the scene where, um, what's his name? Jerry's father-in-law has been killed and he's lying in his blood on the car park floor. And Jerry pulls up and we see the back of Jerry's car and he stops because he sees it. And the frame is like split into two halves. On the left-hand side, you have Jerry's car, the back of Jerry's car. On the right-hand side, you have his father-in-law's dead body. And you just see the boot lid open and it lingers for a second. And I just love that shot so much. Because in that instance, you know what it's conveyed. Jerry's committed to moving the body. He's not going to ring the police. He's in this too deep to get out of there. And I just love that shot so much. I needed to give it a mention.
0: That is... Yeah, that is um, completely justified. I think on a scale of like... I don't know. um, I guess, what would I put the other end of the scale? Like... uh, Peter Rabbit to Uncut Gems. The level of like, oh God, how wrong can this get is quite high. It's quite, it's (laughs) quite near. It's not uncut gems levels. It's not good time levels, but it's, it's towards the upper end of the scale of like, oh God, oh no. How deep is this going to go? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. But but anyway,
1: yes. yes, my rating, this is a 10 out of 10 for me. I don't give many 10 out of 10s, but this is a 10 out of 10 for me. I understand people's criticisms of it. I understand why you gave it a 7.5, but I love it. To me, this is a clear 10 out of 10.
0: Okay. Um, Fair enough. Uh, Let's move on to our man of the match. Actually, we're going to do rewatchability first. So on rewatchability... I'm assuming you think this is extremely rewatchable. I'm assuming you have seen it a lot of times.
1: Yeah, I think it's that kind of easy-watching film. It's got enough comedy in it to make it easily rewatchable, and it's got enough interesting plot to make it rewatchable. You want to watch it again, you want to watch it all unfold again, and you want to enjoy it even more. For me, it's very rewatchable. I've rewatched it several times. One of my favourites. It's very rewatchable.
0: Um, For me, um, I will say, for someone that wasn't superly into it, uh, I think that it still is quite watchable because I think giving it a bit of time and letting me uh, and letting me go come out in a, maybe a few months' time with a maybe fr- fresh perspective, maybe focusing on the positives, thinking about specifically some of the, the stuff like cinematography, cinematography. Um, maybe I'm um, quite intrigued about the, the concepts and you know coming in at only ninety minutes. You know, it's 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 certainly one that I'd be happy to give a go. And I think the the fact that it's so so pretty does not hurt. In making it once, in making it if you want to watch it again. And yeah. uh, moving straight uh, f- swiftly on to the Man of the Match. Uh, and my Man of the Match would probably, following on from that. And there's ex- Steve Ashemi's excellent. You've got to give the Coen Brothers some props. But yeah. I'm giving it to Roger Deakins for cinematography.
1: I did exactly the same thing. You've got to get the. I contemplated giving it to the Coen Brothers because I think this is one of the best screenplays ever. But to me, it's easily Roger Deakins. This, The Fargo is as good as it is because of Roger Deakins.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about the supporting, whether it's supporting or not supporting. Um, there is no doubt that uh, Frances McDormand is the lead of the 2017 film, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, yes. which saw her win. Of course, her second best actress win from her second nomination. And, I, so often, when I've got, I've, I, a few years ago, I've barely seen anything. And I've still not seen a lot of films, but I, I when I got into films, maybe 2018, 2019, I really started getting into films and, and trying to come at them and give them as, uh, you know, try and watch all these greats and watch all the films I've missed. And I'm still doing that now. Um, but I've learned over the last two years, that, or three years, that most, that, that almost all the time, I think that a film title is about, is when I don't, I, I so often don't think a film title is literal. I don't think I think a film title <laughs> is vague or like Blade Runner. I was like, that film is going to be that's just going to be a, a, a phrase, you know, in the in the, in the way that the Clockwork Orange isn't actually about a real Clockwork Orange. Yeah. I always think that loads of things films that they're kind of vague titles, you know, and the thing and it turns out they actually are about that thing, um, yeah, baby teeth, whatever, you know, but there's, <laughs> there's loads of things where it's like, I think it's going to be a thing and. This is another one. I thought that was going to just kind of a vague description of a, a, a feeling. This film really is about three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. This film is completely about three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, and I was not prepared for that. Uh, but this film is a 2017 film directed by Martin McDonough, which sees Frances McDormand play a woman whose daughter was raped and killed seven months ago, and there was never any arrests made, and she. Goes out and gets a uh, three billboards outside every Missouri, in a back road, um, written the words "Raped while dying, still no arrests." How come, Chief Willoughby, um, on the on the board to try and inspire the police, led by Chief Willoughby, played by Woody Harrison, uh, to try and uh, find, oh, reopen the case and try and find who raped and killed her daughter angela the character is called mildred hayes um along with woody Harrison, uh he's joined by a hapless and implied to be racist um fellow cop sam rockwell um he plays a character called jason dixon and there's a there's an awful lot of uh, you know smaller performances and stuff um quite literally including feared english which like that. um and also like including the likes of Samara Weaving, uh, who uh, uh who plays the uh, the partner of John Hawes, uh, Hawks, sorry, who is the uh Francis McDormand's ex-husband. I mean, there's there's an awful lot of uh strong performances here, and uh Caleb La- 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 Landry Jones is a key character of Red who sells the, the billboards, etc. 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 Um now, this film say so came out uh, a few years ago, came uh, in twenty seventeen, and um a lot of characters were um were, were praised. Uh, not only did McDormand win the Academy Award for Best Actress, uh Sam Rockwell also won the Academy Award for Supporting Actor. Um and also Harrison got nominated for the same film. So um I can't really open up with uh you know, why do you love Three Billboards? Because I don't know what your opinion on Three Billboards is. <laughs> I, I didn't I don't know whether it's one of your favourite films like the other two, or whether you thought it is kind of mid or you hate it. Um so I guess I'll start off here and say, um for a film that I actually didn't know anything about, I didn't know the plot at all. I had no clue. Um I I came to this completely open-minded and I haven't seen In Bruges or Seven Psychopaths, which are the two d- films that Martin McDonagh directed before and were both highly praised, especially In Bruges. Um, but of course, I, I, I admire the performance. I, I admire Sam Rockwell and Woody Harrelson extremely highly and was quite ha- excited to see Francis McDormand. Um, and I was generally very very impressed by a uh, excellent film um that i think i can understand easily why it got so many nominations i can also think that you know it, it, you know it certainly must have been you know one of the strongest films of the year that year i was a very big fan i thought that the the straight at the center of this film are uh, and i was talking about already is the performances this film is so led by three really really key performances by three excellent veterans um, not only is Sponsor McDormand Nailit and Sam Rock Nailit, but Woody House and you know I think personally even better than Sam Rock in this film. Um, dealing with some really really sensitive subjects, does it in a way that um, shows you know real emotion uh, and you you really see these characters and all of these characters as very three dimensional. No one is presented as outwardly bad. No one is presented as outwardly good. There is so much to think about these characters and you really question the decisions of each one of them and the way in which you see these characters are so dictated by some you know absolutely top top top-notch performances the concept is extremely intriguing and i'll say throughout this i was absolutely glued to my seat i was so um enthralled by what was happening here you know that you really unpredictable things that happened throughout this um i thought that you know it, the uh some of the the, the cinematography was well being maybe not talked about to the same degree but i thought the cinematography was absolutely excellent um i will talk about some issues in in a second but i thought uh, i was kind of blown away by you know just how many boxes it ticked here i thought this was a really really emotional film um and a really really sad film which also i will mention was very surprisingly funny. It's a really sad story, a really sad film that makes you feel hollow at points. Yet re- almost constantly, uh, every other scene throws in a little dig here and a little joke there, and it's, it's surprisingly funny. Um, but yeah, you know, I just you know, I was I was really 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 uh, pleased by three billboards. I was uh, a very big fan.
1: I feel the same way. Mostly, I have positive feelings towards three billboards. <laughs> Uh I first watched Billboard three billboards actually I, I- saw it before it came out because i it was uh playing at Odeon as a screen on unseen where you just buy a ticket and you don't know what's playing uh and it was about two months before it came out and I hadn't actually seen it since then, so I hadn't seen it since twenty seventeen until I rewatched it this week uh and I did forget how much I loved it like you say i when a film opens with a billboard that says raped while dying you really don't expect to be laughing
0: (laughs) right yeah exactly yeah
1: and i remember being in the cinema and it was like people were like everyone was laughing like out loud people were guffawing in the cinema how funny it is because it's so funny and i agree with you the cinematography doesn't get spoken about enough but it's amazing cinematography and the three performances like you said, I agree with virtually everything you said. I, I don't think that Woody Harrelson outshone Sam Rockwell, though. I do think Sam Rockwell completely stole the show. Um, but I think, mm, well, from not stole the show. Francis McDormand steals the yeah, show in this McDormand to me. Stole the show. Yeah, um, I agree. But from Woody Harrelson, I mean, he is the best supporting performance to me. Um, but I think the way that Francis McDormand plays, I get, like like we were saying during the Fargo the section where we're talking about Fargo, it's so different for Francis McDormand, like all three of her wins are so different, like in Fargo she plays this warm, lovely, caring woman, in this she plays this angry, vindictive, sad woman, and then in Nomadland she plays this grieving woman who's just trying to get by, and who feels completely lost, and they're three completely different performances, and they're all so good, uh, and in this film I think maybe it might be my favourite of her three, um, because you know, with a film about such a sensitive topic where something so tragic happens to a daughter, you expect a scene where she kind of breaks down and wails and sobs and falls to her knees, and she doesn't have one because you realise about halfway through that she's not sad anymore. She's angry and she's angry with the world and she's furious and she's out for vengeance and she wants to avenge her daughter. Um and mm. and that's how you feel throughout most of the film. And it's only towards the end that she really starts to show any kind of vulnerability. But there are, there are scenes where she's on her own. Like There's a scene with a deer where she shows vulnerability for really the first time. And it's like, it was such a, a strange moment because you get to know Mildred as this angry woman who just hates everyone and hates the world. Um, and then she shows such a moment of vulnerability with a deer um and that was one of the best scenes in the film um and martin madonna's screenplay i do have issues with it that we'll get to in a second but the screenplay is genius i think it's one of the best screenplays you know i think maybe it should have won over get out i don't know maybe probably not actually but um yeah maybe not but it was it's one of the best screenplays ever uh, and it's so funny but so serious as well. Like the, the humor never seems to come out of place. Like it's very fitting. And I think it's just, mm. it's one of the best screenplays ever. One of the best films of the 2010s. Um, and I think mm. the themes that run throughout it of, you know, regret and grief and anger and redemption as well. Um, yeah, yeah. I think they're they're done so well. And I just think that it it's, I forgot how much I loved it until I rewatched it this past week.
0: Interesting, interesting. Um you mentioned about screenplay um and how strong it is and from a uh plot point of view I agree strongly and some of the more emotional moments is the later on that would have been of course well written a, a few monologues that that uh Mildred, who's France McDonald's character plays, uh, says, uh, you know, it goes in these long monologues. Some of them are very strong. However, I did have issues with a lot of the dialogue. Actually, that that is Ooh. the most outstanding issue I had with the film is that I felt quite on a number of occasions, and I can't bring out particularly many examples off the top of my head. Um, but I felt throughout the film a few times where I was like, this dialogue feels forced. This dialogue perhaps feels childish. This dialogue feels written. Um, you know, I, I did, I didn't always think that every conversation felt particularly real. I thought that a lot of the uh, dialogue uh, between, uh, especially from uh, Francis McDormand's son her characters, her son's uh, Mildred Hayes's son, um, Lucas Hedges' character, not necessarily always feeling very real. I thought that. Uh, a lot of the dialogue that Harrison, some of the dialogue that Harrison had with his 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 uh, wife, Abby Cornish, uh, in the, played by happy Cornish, necessarily like a little bit unre- unbelievable. I I I felt that the when the when the film went emotional, it was you know, you know especially those monologues that she goes on are strong. Uh, the plot is strong, but I I didn't always love all of the dialogue.
1: Fair enough. That's a, it's a strange complaint for me. I think the dialogue's mm-hmm. great. Um, I do understand what you mean, though. It does have very unconventional dialogue, and I think it's partly because Martin Madonna is a playwright. Um, right. He has written his screenplays, obviously, but he is a playwright, uh, and I think it does sound very play It sounds very different. Like the, one of the uh, earlier on points in the film when uh, Mildred says betwixt instead of between, things like yeah. that that just seem odd and manufactured but i like those moments to be honest
0: yeah i i just at some points i I felt like um i just i I wasn't i just felt like some of the dialogue felt unnatural to me and yeah maybe other people disagree i I just a few times i thought "I, i that feels a little bit too written a few times i was like i can i can that feels like a screenplay writer saying that that doesn't necessarily feel like a human saying that um, which is probably the biggest issue I actually had with the film in general. There's not too much else I can say negatively. Um, yeah, I think that at the end of the day you've got, it's almost an ensemble feature because of the amount mm-hmm. of little characters and little appearances you get. Um, and some uh, are generally very strong. Um, and you get A very, and I guess the the, one of the positives of the screenplay is that you get your opinions on an awful lot of characters, and you get an awful lot of um, interesting characters and, and, and different characters in only two hours. Um, and you kind of develop opinions of you know, characters like Samara Weaving's character, who might only be on screen for three minutes, um, and you have a very outwardly like you know strong opinion on her character. And perhaps the same with Peter Dinklage, probably isn't in it, isn't it for more than twenty minutes, but he's you know he's still a very important character in the story. Uh, that character Red, you know, I think, um, you know, I think that one of the say I said earlier, you know, it's it's very it's very character driven, and I do think that that you know there is a point to be made that unlike Fargo. Compared to Fargo, there is no character that is outwardly good or bad.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. It's all very blurred. With the exception to
0: there is one bad guy. There's one bad guy, but he's not in it much.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: But, there's, but the, even uh, Vincent McDormand's character, Mildred, definitely does things which you think, mm, you know, is that right? And she yeah. makes strange decisions at points and you think, uh, like, she definitely isn't completely outwardly good. Definitely. Yeah,
1: she definitely blurs the lines. Um, but I think everything that she does is justified as well because I think she's justly angry at the world and angry with the police department sure, because yeah, of yeah. what happened. Yeah. And I think that's why it really blurs the lines because setting fire to a police department generally is agreed upon as a bad thing. But when you look at what they've done to her, it it's justified and it makes sense. Mm, mm. Or at least it does to what? me.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, not necessarily... It, it, it's that not necessarily everything she does is good, not necessarily everything you do you necessarily agree with, but nothing feels nothing feels like a stretch, nothing feels like un uncharacter like you know she un mm. you know, uncharacteristic everything feels you know, you say justified, everything feels understandable. Nothing comes across as, as an amazing step for the character, and I'm surprised they did that. And even the characters who make ma- major turns, such as Sam Rockwell's character, you can understand the justification for that. Uh, you said you do have problems with the film. Can you? Is there any outstanding issues you have with this film?
1: My biggest issue with this film, I didn't have one when I first watched it. It was a 10 out of 10. But when I rewatched it this time, I don't know whether it's because I'm older now and I've matured by three years Um, but this time when I watched it my biggest issue was Sam Rockwell's character and the ending to his character because I think he's most definitely very racist throughout. We hear that he tortures black people and he beats women and he commits a lot of police brutality and to me he doesn't get the redemption that he doesn't deserve the redemption that he gets because he gets this redemption and he seems like a changed person and they want you to act like he's a changed person, but I don't feel like he deserves it. Like he didn't actually do anything to redeem himself. All he did Mm. was, you know, he got fired from his job for almost killing someone by throwing them out of a window. And it's like, yeah, that's the bare minimum. And then he gets in a fire, which is bad. And then he gets beaten up, which is bad. But that's punishment. That's not redemption. Uh, The only thing he does to even begin to redeem himself is some police work to try and catch uh, Angela Hayes' killer. But he doesn't deserve the redemption that he gets. So at the end, when he's kind of driving away with Mildred, I'm like, I don't feel like he deserves to have this ending. I wanted him to die or go to prison. Mm. Because to me, he definitely doesn't. He does not redeem himself to me, so to see him get redeemed by the narrative was a letdown for me. I think this film would have been so much better had he kind of got his comeuppance and he died in hospital, or if something else happened to him bad, I just, I don't think that he got his redemption. Or he, he did get a redemption, but I don't think he deserved it.
0: Okay. Um... I kind of agree and I kind of don't. On a kind of human level, I agree. You know, on an actual real-life personal level, I agree. But I feel like in the film, I think there's a very clear epiphany. And I think that, you know, even though, you know, I think that they throw in enough individual loss that he kind of gets broken down to his very lowest. And I think his determination to do good in those times, I think the epiphany that arrives with him with learning what Woody Harrison thinks... Um, that is maybe uh, in the terms of the film. I, I think that I didn't feel like you know he necessarily did deserve it. You know that they they never. I, I think that within the, the realms of the film itself, I never felt like it's too you know you know he very clearly has a character change. I don't think it's too you know over the top person. I thought I didn't yeah. have an issue with that myself. Um, it, wasn't it, it wasn't a huge issue no, for me.
1: It wasn't a huge issue for me. It was just something that kind of knocked it down from being a ten out of ten from when I if first you want watched to hear it. Francis- but uh, yeah. if you want to hear time...
0: Frances McDormand scream the N word, you can do so by watching this film.
1: Yeah, you can. That's that's another thing that this film does a lot.
0: <laughs> Frances McDormand does scream the N word, which you know, I guess, you know, maybe I've I would have played the Oscars live and cancelled her live on stage. Um, but yeah, she does do that. Um, but yeah, I was really, really pleased, and I'm. I didn't actually know how positive you were in this film. Um, yeah, like you, uh, when you said, you know, you had it as a 10, that was a bit like, oh, so you actually really, really liked it before. And for someone that talked so highly of, of Fargo in their um, you know, I'm almost surprised to hear you say this is perhaps France McDormand's strongest performance. I think, um, I agree. Uh, I think that the, the this, uh, you know, as much as in parts of the script, the script and, and the, the way that her character is, where she dominates the screen time, unlike in Fargo, and she's given so much. Um, You know, very clear pain in a very much more obvious way than in Nomadland. Um, She really really plays with that well and I think that that Frances McDormand puts in strong performances in all these films Um, but I think she does put in her very strongest here. Yeah I agree. agree. Yeah
1: And, and it's because she's not just playing this angry mother as well, this angry woman she's also playing this very strong person who doesn't want to be vulnerable and doesn't want to show her emotions and Another aspect of a character that kind of goes under the radar because they don't really speak about it much is the fact that she's a victim of domestic abuse. And I find it really, there's there's one scene particularly that I always found really interesting about her ability to just switch. Like there's, you know, all the way through she's angry and in control and she's the scary one. But then when her ex-husband comes in, there's a scene where she says something and he flips the table and grabs her by the neck and pushes her up against the wall. And she kind of just lets it happen because she seems scared. And I think the way that she conveys that, as well as all of her anger, was just so good. And I think this is her strongest performance.
0: I'm going to talk about Abby Cornish, um, the person that plays uh, Woody Harrison's partner in the film, Anne Willoughby. Uh, And I just want to talk about her accent. Um, What was going on there? Is she talking in her normal voice? Is she an Australian woman trying to do an English accent? Do you understand? What's going on there?
1: I'm not going to lie. I don't remember anything strange about her accent.
0: Really? I could not stop thinking about it. Throughout <laughs> the whole... Next time you watch this film, if you watch this film again, listen to it. I think, and I'm not sure, maybe she's just got a weird voice. I think she's, Aust- I know she's Australian. I think she's an Australian woman badly attempting an English accent. I can't be certain. I'm going to have to
1: watch this film again soon and pay attention because I didn't notice anything wrong with it the first time.
0: Cuz I'm like for that film, I was like maybe she just has a, like a little bit of a British accent in her, maybe she's like her dad's English or something. But I was like this just sounds like a bad English accent to me. Maybe maybe I'm just misunderstanding. That that annoyed me, but that's not a particular film issue, that's just an issue with maybe she's just got a freaky voice in which case maybe, you know, don't go on the radio. Um <laughs> But I, yeah, what's <laughs> well, on? Peter Dinklage just gets abused in this film. I don't think Peter Dinklage oh, is, an, God, uh, yeah. is an ugly man. I don't think he's an ugly fella at all. Um, but he constantly gets bullied in this film. Yeah. Throughout he's the whole like the film, William H. Macy
1: this f- film, where all the way to exactly. Fargo, people are like, oh, he's very funny looking. No, William no, H. Macy it. and no, it's in Steve this Bichemmy, one, it's just, they're just Steve bully Bichemmy. Peter Dinklage. Steve
0: Buscemi.
1: Oh, yeah, Steve Buscemi, sorry. That's what I meant.
0: Um, yeah, they're just like, oh yeah, you're not a catch. Yeah, that little weird fucking midget, or that little fucking thing. Because there was a, <laughs> there was a. I when Pete thinks he's up, I was like, and they had a conversation with him. And I was thinking, oh, you know what was nice about I care a lot is that he got to play a role in which people don't constantly talk about how it's a midget. Like they constant like they don't actually yeah. like. That, that he, I was like, he must be happy to get roles where he's. They don't constantly talk about his height, and then in this film, and I was like, I thought that, and then like. This film is just consistently... People just bullying him about, about being being short. I don't know what the politically correct person is. Um, I'm not sure either, to be honest. I don't know. I don't know whatever. Um, I don't think it's politically but, challenged, though. <laughs> I don't know. Short people or something. I don't know. What's what's the word? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I apologise to my dwarf listeners. Um... But, uh, yeah, he just gets bullied throughout the whole film. <laughs> just like a, fucking, like, a fucking midget. Oh, that fucking little dwarf bastard. Oh, you're, you're going... You the, the dwarf wants to get in my pants or whatever. It's like, fucking hell. Poor, poor fella, man. He also read this script to be like, oh, okay, I'll do it again. <laughs> like, oh. And we're going to get bullied for it again.
1: Poor bloke. Like... It's true. I, he, he must have had a right blast reading this script.
0: <laughs> I was watching... I'm going to mention the film again. Uh, I was watching um, the Arrow Academy um, extras for being John Malkovich. Um, and they have an interview on there with John Malkovich and talking about how, you know, how he's affiliation with the project and how they convinced him to do it and such and Charlie Kaplan convinced him and he talked about it saying like oh you know I, I, I kind of wanted to tone down some of the jokes about me in the screenplay but they wouldn't do it and I was thinking no nobody really makes fun of him in the screenplay at all in that film. No one really like he doesn't really get the yeah. piss taken out of him at all. Like comparatively, m- like an awful lot of actors get the piss taken out of him all the time. And I feel like actors that are known for being quote unquote ugly, like Steve Buscemi, get abused in every film they're in. That's just, what are you moaning about, John Malkovich? I'd like Peter Dinklage <laughs> to say that in an interview. Oh, I want him to tone down jokes, but they're just gonna bully me about something I can't control again. You know, it is. What are you on about, John Malkovich and like, the entire crew? <laughs> um, three movies i remember, sorry, what are you getting a rating out of ten? So it's not a ten. It was a ten, but it's not a ten. No, for it's you
1: now. It's an eight now.
0: It's an eight for me too. Uh, eight and a half, I'd say. If I if we go in half, I think it's like eight and a half. That you know, my issues with the screenplay, uh, some of the dialogue kind of notched down a little bit but I did really 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 admire some very excellent special performances and a really intriguing story so eight and a half for me um, about when it comes to um, rewatchability um, for some reason I don't feel um, a draw to rewatch this I there's a feeling about it that even though it was, I feel like it was quite an emotional journey that I don't know if I'm prepared to go on for a while
1: yeah I kind of get that I kind of agree with that. Yeah, it's quite a it's a heavy film to process, um, but I think it's got some rewatchability because of all the comedy in it. But uh, it's definitely a heavy film, so I don't think it's very rewatchable.
0: It's um, it's funny that when I look at a the difference between a ninety minute film and a um, two hour film is insanely long in my mind's eye. I'm like, oh, that's quick. Oh, that's so long. It's like it's half an hour is not that long, but the difference in 90 minutes and hundred twenty minutes for me is like it's like <laughs> insane. Okay. Moving on. Oh yes, oh oh uh, uh man and Action, of course, sorry. For previous, what's your man of match for three builds?
1: Uh for this film it is Francis mcdormand
0: you know, in, in snap, dude. I, yeah. I'm going to go. For this is a Frances
1: McDormand special. We have to give her the MVP of at least one.
0: Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're giving her the MVP. Um, moving on to the recent Best Picture winner, Nomadland, directed by Chloe Zhao by the Avengers, the, not the Avengers, by Marvel's The Eternals director Chloe Zhao. Um, so Nomadland is. A film about what is nomad land about nomad land is about Frances McDormand, uh who is a woman living out of a van uh after she gets uh her whole town fell during a the economic crash in two thousand eleven the kind of second wave um of the economic crash that started in 2008 um and her whole her whole town stopped existing because the plant went got shut down. Uh, so she's left without a home. Her husband dies of cancer uh, prior to the films. You know, back in, in two thousand ten or whatever. Uh, so she has to uh, leave, and she lives in her van. She drives around the country as a nomad, trying to find short term work uh, and and to try and and on the way she meets a number of. Uh, curious figures other nomads who tell them her story uh, their story and interact with her in various different ways um and, yeah, so it's a film that is not particularly, describe it is not strongly plot-driven. faux documentary would certainly sum it up. Um, and it is based on a non-fiction book, which we described in our uh, adapted screenplay section last week uh, on the Oscars podcast, um, which was Nomadland Surviving America in the 21st Century. And I believe this film does a job uh, attempt. It's written as well as being... Uh, directed, uh, as well as edited as well, uh, by Chloe Zhao. And I believe this film is an attempt to tell the stories of real-life nomads through a kind of film narrative. So you, am I right in saying a number of the characters she meets in the film are real-life characters telling their real-life stories, correct?
1: Yeah, that's true. I'm almost certain that there are only two actors in this film.
0: Yeah, the two actors being Francis McDormand and David Strathern. Uh, Strathern Strathern
1: Strathurn Strathurn. Either. Yeah,
0: um and, and everyone else yeah is, is the people when they tell that their, their real life stories and such um now of course this one's best picture this also won best director and this also won best actress that was it <laughs> that's the one i should have <laughs> remembered that's the one i shouldn't have forgotten um at the at the oscars this year it also won uh other awards. i believe it, it did it win cinematography at uh the baftas is that yeah it did um and you know and it was also nominated it, the Oscars for screenplay and cinematography and editing um so you know very very highly rated one seen as one of the uh, the standouts of 2020 but has divided divided opinion and I expect to see an awful lot of people that are underwhelmed coming out of the cinema when it releases on the 14th or the 17th sorry in Britain now I'll say that For Not because I think the film's awful, but because this film certainly is not the most commercial film. Um, Now, I'm going to open it up. Um, Why do you love Nomadland so much?
1: I am going to reject that and say you go first for this one. Because I want to hear what you have to say first so I can respond to it and correct you where you say things that are wrong about Nomadland. Like the fact (laughs) that it's not perfect.
0: (laughs) i watched this film a few months ago and i came out of it with not amazingly positive thoughts but i strong i think uh, and i i still very much admire what it was trying to do and i understood it and and i gave it an 8 out of 10 um and i came out and i was excited to rewatch it. i thought i'm gonna watch it again i gave it full attention and i'm really looking forward to it and i've got to say i wasn't really any more enthralled the second time now i do plan to watch this in imax when it gets released um and i think that will help it and be giving me a full attention you know um you know imax in stuck in that cinema will will be strong but i mean i'm gonna give a, a fairly skate I'm, I'm gonna be quite you know i'm not, I'm gonna sound like i dislike it more than i am but Land is as i said a very loose story it's a very loose narrative um and it consists of a large amount of fun traveling around and dealings with you know trying to sleep one night here and one night there and at the end of the day you know i I don't want to say this because it makes me sound you know dumb or or you know not you know film uh, literate or (laughs) something at the end of the day i just found myself bored quite a few times um this film's um, you know, I felt like I really, really love the cinematography, consistently love the cinematography, and, and I'm not gonna deny it, and I think it's absolutely excellent. I think, you know, it, I love Mank's cinematography, but I would say Joshua James Richards here deserved it over him at the Oscars. Uh, you know, I think that, so Mank, is beautiful, and I, I, I think it's really strong as an adaptation of, you know, the fact that you told me it was an adaptation of a non-fiction book made me like it more. I love the idea of it on paper. This film is perfect for me you know I think it's it's a really good concept it's got a strong central performance it's dealing with real world issues um, and you know the idea that it's trying to kind of link all these individual stories of real life nomads and their struggles it sounds perfect but at the end of the day in execution I found myself quite often waiting for for scenes to end for waiting for the film to end because it didn't capture me I just found myself essentially like just waiting around and I just thought That there was no point where I felt really connected with the character. I never really felt... I was truly invested. And I also felt like I never felt true sympathy with her. Um, The character throughout the film. It's not like she is surviving from paycheck to paycheck. Because she's got no one left. And she's left on her own. She very much has the option. An awful lot of people invite her in. A lot of people invite her to do things. Her sister invites her to live with her. And she's so caught up in her own pride that she denies all those things it's not like she's a homeless person trying to you know um scrape meal to meal she's not like she's someone living on the streets kind of thing she she is she has the opportunity i didn't feel like the latter i just felt like her kind of pride you know made me think more like what are you doing mate rather than you know this this noble um you know a uh, journey this this battle against all the odds you know she's she, her versus everyone it felt like you know why do i necessarily want to care about this character okay her husband died and that's sad but i i didn't really feel like i really had any real reason to 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 feel strongly it just seemed like a series of occasional events that were um you know interesting about characters talking about their lives and then an awful lot of me just waiting around for the next scene, and and just such scenes of RVs in, in parking lots, of people telling her to to you know park in here, or do you want to go to the church and stuff like that. And it just, I just it does it, does, it, it the film fa- fails to capture me, Lewis. I know that'll break your heart, but and I'll give it another try. I'll give it a third go in in IMAX, but it it didn't, it hasn't, it's just failed to really take my attention.
1: That is devastating.
0: I went on my phone. I kept picking up my phone to check notifications. I knew I didn't have notifications, but I thought no, I might have a notification just be- just because I wasn't attached. Oh god! <laughs> I think it's a technical masterpiece. Um, yeah. I really do, uh, and uh, and and I can understand why people would say it's their favorite film of the year, um, and and such. And I can understand the plaudits. And I wouldn't disagree with almost any positive thing you could say about this film, um, but I'm interested. I'm 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 interested that you're so in love with it because I find like this film is so cold. I think it's really, even though it, you know the, the, all the positives it has, I find it very hard to love. Do you know what I mean? I feel it's really feel a hard film to because it's just so bleak you know I find it's it's interesting and I'm not saying in in a you're wrong way but I find it interesting from my perspective seeing someone so in love with this
1: it is interesting I find it interesting as well because it's not the kind of film that I love usually it's unusual but I do and to just address one of the things that you said about Fern and about she gets a lot of opportunities to live somewhere but she turns it down because of her pride she doesn't turn it down because of her pride she turns it down because she's had that life with Bo, and if she moves in with someone else and moves into someone's house, she is, like, moving on from Bo, and she's not ready to do that yet. She feels like if she moves in with her sister, or if she moves in with Dave, then she's moved on, and she's forgotten about Bo, and she can't do that yet. And she becomes completely acclimatized to being a nomad, and she can't live any other way. This is the way she's adapted now and she can't go back. Like, she goes to David's house and she stays there and she literally can't sleep in the house. She has to go outside and sleep in a van because she's accustomed to this life now. She can't go back to how it used to be. It's not out of pride. It's because she can't move on. She can't go back to how things were because if she lives in the house again, it feels wrong because Beau isn't there.
0: Okay, so take that. The next answer is... Oh, my next thing is okay then if she wants to go live and be a nomad okay then she doesn't really struggle she seems to consistently find work you know she meets interesting people but in which case you know okay then well, i don't you know like what is the the drive here you know is there a is there a point to these endless scenes they tell her they tell emotional stories but you know, what is my point in dealing with this character? She's happy living on the road and she manages to do it pretty much fine throughout the film. She never really, truly struggles at any point. So in which case, fine. Okay, then. She's just driving about.
1: No, she's uh, she's been forced to do this. She doesn't want to do this. She didn't. No one wanted to do this. No one chose to be in this life. They're just all making the best out of a bad situation. And to see fern travel we do see a struggle we see a struggle with keeping warm and finding places to park and being alone and and grieving the loss of her husband that the the film is about grieving beau and losing beau and trying to move on but not forgetting the past but moving on from the past and she drives around and she meets the same people and it's about her every time we see her we see her getting better at it like at the start she's um a guest and linda may is guiding her through everything but then towards the end and about halfway through she becomes the one who guides people she gets more used to this life and she does always manage to find work but it's not much work she doesn't get paid a lot she just gets paid enough to stay where she is that's all it is so that she can pay for uh, petrol and she can find somewhere to park and somewhere to live and she can pay for food it's not luxury she doesn't live a luxurious life obviously she's still living out the back of a van and the struggle for her is moving on and being happy it's not living like this it's moving on from Bo that's what the film's about it's not about Fern living as a nomad it's about Fern grieving and Fern moving on and I think that it's about her character it's not about anything that her character does it's not about anything that her character participates in it's about her character it's about the inward feelings of her character
0: yeah i I think you know it's funny because you say it's not really your kind of film i actually think this is my kind of film i think if so if someone was to analyze us i think they probably as you say it's not your thing i think they probably would guess that our opinions would be opposite because I, i do love this kind of thing and I, I, I really do admire what's doing. everything you could say. I could pretty much agree with I could tickle the boxes. When we talked about Nomadland in the Oscars podcast, I ended up the podcast thinking, Nomadland might be the best film ever made. Oh my God, it's so good. But then when I watch it, it's just something. It just fails to, to click that, that something in the back of my head. I just don't know what it is. Because it's so obviously good. It just doesn't make a connection to me. More yeah. so than Fargo, because at Fargo I can say some clear reasons. But I just get, I just, I've watched Nomadland twice and I've been very bored twice. And both times I've been looking forward to the film finishing. And that, that's the worst insight you can give to a film. But I don't feel like this film is awful. I, I'm actually going to give this a pretty high rating as as it goes. Um, and, uh, you know, there are positives, there's strong positives i talk about. I'll say, you know, I really, one, one thing that's really strong about the film, um, and we talked about it a lot on the last podcast, was these kind of almost like set pieces these little moments where you get each character these real life people saying their thoughts and and giving their stories that is the what that was the you know as much as i can talk about like the things like how good the the editing is and stuff and how good the cinematography is that that was the highlight of the film was definitely watching these characters, especially since I knew they were real. since I knew what this was based off watching these characters tell their stories, knowing they had real weight to them. You know, that, um, that, that was really what the highlight of the film for me, hearing the character of Swanky describe her life, talking about Linda May, when she describes her, all of her money. You lose lost in the 2008. Um, American crash, you know, that, that was really, and of course the, the conversation with Bob Wells at the end, which is, you know, ex- his monologue that Bob goes on, um, which is really, really emotional, um, and those moments I think is really, really what highlights this film. That's the absolute thing. Is is that that's a standout not only from um, you know from some very, very impressive acting from people that aren't actors um, from an insane point of view and and from an and an adaptation point of view how well it was adapted. That's what really stands out to me. Is like that that's what makes this film very good. Is the those real life people getting to t- tell their their stories in a way which you know isn't particularly forced
1: yeah i completely agree i think the way that chloe chow uses non-actors is unbelievable like no one else does it like that i remember clint eastwood made a film a few years ago um i think it was called something like the 1517 to paris and it was about three men who yes
0: i about to say that yeah yes
1: it was about three men who stopped a terrorist attack and he cast the real men in those roles and it really didn't work for me. And I because think, they act. Yeah, yeah, because exactly. they can't act. And he treated them like actors. He gave them a script and he took them to sets and gave them set pieces. Chloe Zhao treats these people like people. She just puts a camera in front of them and says, tell us your story. And they do. Because when you read the screenplay, because I've read the screenplay because I'm sad. <laughs> um, yeah. what What is being said on screen is not what's written in the screenplay. Because she just said to them, just tell us what you want to say, tell us your story. And they just go on Mm -hmm. about what they want about their story from their perspectives. And I think that is a talent in a director that is so sought after that more directors should be able to do because all three of her films use non-actors, the protagonist of her second film, the rider. He is a, he isn't an actor. He's a horse rider. Uh, And it's his story that gets told in the rider. Um, but the thing about the rider is it's always held back by the fact that he isn't an actor. Like at, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, no matter how good she is at using non-actors, a cowboy, a horse rider, isn't going to be able to give a stellar leading performance. Whereas in this film, she gets the best of both worlds because she has the powerhouse of Francis McDormand and she surrounds her with real people and non-actors. So she gets the best of both worlds. She gets a, a great leading performance and she gets a, uh, you know, real authenticity from these people.
0: Do you think that the fact that you know that these characters are real and that Fern is not real, whilst based on obviously a million real people, do you think the fact that these aren't real, these actors actually makes the actors characters feel almost two dimensional because you know, they aren't in the same situation? Mm. Or do you think that's not an issue at all? Not for I think me. There, I, wouldn't say that is an, I wouldn't say that as an outward issue. However, res- you know retrospectively, I can see how, you know, when you've got, you know, essentially the audience, if the audience knows that all these stories are so important, then you almost would say you perhaps there's the issue that you perhaps would care less about Fern because it doesn't seem as important comparatively.
1: that's not the case for me, I think that that is a testament to Frances McDormand and her performance, because she seamlessly, Mm -hmm. and we spoke about this last week when we spoke about why she won, Uh, I think the way that she blends in with real people and the way that she blends in with these actors, these, sorry, these real people, these non-actors, and she fits in seamlessly and she acts as one of them and they are with her and she's with them, I think that's just a testament to how good she is as an actress, I, I didn't get that vibe. At all,
0: no. I actually didn't either. I, I was just, um, I was just asking. Um, but uh, I'll say that that you know, I guess we'll, we've mentioned it briefly on on this before. But what this film does so well, and one of the things this film does so well, is it, the the usage of of lighting and the timing of of the shots. You know, it really feels authentic. That's one thing you could not even. It feels unbelievably authentic. Um, much like fargo as i said for authenticity um the her waking up and wait and kind of you know squinty eyed to the the bright bright light of, of the morning and and her dealing with you know the issues from day to day whilst i you know had issues with you know the content of some of these scenes you know you just can't you, it's it's real a real achievement just how real a lot of these vistas feel
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, in a way, I think that's a testament to Jessica Bruder's book. Because many of the things from this film, not just the stories that the real nomads tell, uh, are taken directly from the book. Like the book opens with uh, Jessica Bruder driving behind Linda May. And she describes how she can see the van driving in front of her and how it turns and how she's following it perfectly. And in my head, when I read that in the book the way that we see the way that we sit behind Fern's van and watch Fern's van drive along. It's exactly what I pictured when I read the book and it's, it's things like that, that Jessica Pruder describes in the book, like working at the campsites and working at Amazon that I think they capture so perfectly in the film on the, in the screen. That is due to Chloe Zhao's direction, but also to Joshua James Richards cinematography, like you said, I think, they translated this book exceptionally well, uh, visually and narratively. I think it's a perfect adaptation of the book, and it's an important and perfect story that needed to be told.
0: I um, I agree. Um, I would like to shout out uh, an article uh, on the website girlsontoptease.com, T is spelled like the T like T shirts, um, an article by Brianna Ziegler called "Learning to Live on the Ethos of Nomadland," which I read um after watching the second time, and and I felt quite strongly, I, I related to a lot of the things said in that article. One of which being my thought that she didn't really need to be a nomad. You've, you've addressed that. Your thoughts on that? Uh, and there's kind of the, this thing that they talk about in, in that article. Uh, that she talks about how um this film, and I, and I guess I'm, I'm bastardising it, but this kind of the film has highly political iconography and clearly has strong political undertones but necessarily doesn't step completely into it it doesn't really double down i feel on there's obviously a strong political uh, backbone to this uh an anti-capitalist backbone about you know with the situation that fern gets in because of the collapse of the because of the economic crisis and you know you get some scenes of uh, bob wells talking about uh, the issues of, you know, living to, for for the dollar. Uh, however, I don't think it ever truly uh, doubles down on the issues there. I think that perhaps the fact that, you know, and, and people have been highly critical of the input of Amazon. You know, Amazon did help fund this film. Amazon is shown as kind of, uh, you know, fine company to work for. There's no outward showing of it being bad. Uh, but not only that, but I feel like this, Fern, uh, the, this film and Fern... Not throughout the it never really embraces or truly um feels like uh it is showing the political message which it really could have done. How do you feel about that?
1: I agree that it could have done, but I don't think that it should have done. And I don't think that it's right. a crit- I disagree with that as a criticism, because I think this film exists not as a piece of journalism or a piece of non-fiction social commentary this film exists as a piece of art a character study of fern of women in their 60s of older people who are casualties of capitalism and I think I said this I wrote an article about this as well <laughs> um, right. where I basically said Noma, um, Amazon features in less than two minutes of screen time in Nomadland In a one hour and 50 minute runtime, Amazon is featured in less than two minutes and that's all people are focusing on. People aren't focusing on the fact that the very existence of this film, the very existence of people who are forced out of their homes, forced out of domesticated lives, into living into vans, that is a political criticism. That is a criticism of the economy that leaves old people At the bottom, you know, Bob Wells talks about it in one of his monologues where he talks about, he uses the analogy of a workhorse that works itself to death. And then when Mm. it can't work anymore, it's just discarded. And it's not kept around because it's not, you know, they don't love it. It's just a workhorse. That's all it's there for. And that's what older people are treated like under capitalism. They work until they die or they work until they retire and often they can't retire like linda may says it wasn't enough to retire fern says she didn't have enough money to retire these people are left behind by the economy and that's the criticism that people want i don't agree with the fact that nomadland should have done or needed to Go out of its way to critique Amazon. It doesn't present Amazon in a favorable way It doesn't present Amazon in a negative way It just shows Fern working there and like I said earlier this film isn't about Fern's actions or the things that Fern does Or the things that Fern participates in this film is just about Fern and her feelings of grief and how she's trying to move on and you know in the book that is an amazing piece of journalism when it comes to huge corporations and capitalism and what it does to older people uh the film though isn't that and i don't think it should have been that i think it is what it needed to be it is what it should have been it should never have been this non-fiction investigative film that you know shone light on all of the problems to do with capitalism and uh huge corporations like amazon because everyone knows amazon is horrible and the way that it treats its employees is abhorrent no one is disagree with that but I do disagree with the fact that a film that features Amazon needs to criticise it
0: well, I think that the criticism of Amazon itself is a much, you know, a microcosm of, of a wider problem, I don't necessarily think that, that Amazon is the is the only issue, I just feel like this film had so much potential in general to criticise um, capitalism I think that it, it, it kind of flirts with going into that such as the Bob Wells talk but it never truly does. And you don't know, I don't know, part of me, the cynical part of me thinks it's closure playing it safe. But maybe, I don't know, maybe that, that, that's, no, that's not true. Um, but, you know, I just, you know, it's partly, I kind of wish that there was a bit more of that. You know, I think that's just a little bit, I don't know. I do know what uh, you mean. I do think that
1: it's a valid thing to want. I just disagree with it. I don't. I, I completely understand people that want it from the film. I just disagree with it. I think that the fact that these people are forced out of their home... You know, you hear one person talk about the fact that it was a, a, vet, a war veteran who has PTSD and loads of mental health issues, and he was forced out of his home. He wasn't offered care. He was forced into this life. And everyone says no one chose to do this they were forced to do it because of the tyranny of the dollar as bob wells says but they're making the best of a bad situation and are they happy yes but they're not this isn't their first choice this is a last resort and i think that the way that we follow fern on this journey because it's not about capitalism capitalism is a background to this It's about Fern and her getting over the grief of her husband because the film opens and she's in a storage unit full of stuff that she can't get rid of. She is paying money that she desperately needs in order to keep his stuff and she picks up one of his coats and she clings on it tightly and sniffs it and she can't let go of it. Figuratively, she can't let go of it because she's paying to keep it and it's a struggle to put it down physically as well because she she's cries as she's holding it and then as the film goes on she starts to realize that to remember bob to remember bob to remember bo she doesn't need to cling on to his stuff she just needs to remember him and that's the you know there are three occasions in my head that are the um most important sequences slash scenes in the film the first one is when she goes to david's house and she sees this domestic life that she once had and she had it with Bo, and she used to cook, and she used to clean it, she used to have family around, and and she used to have that domestic life, but she can't have it anymore because Bo isn't there. She doesn't want that domestic life unless Bo is with her, and she can't do that without Bo. And like I said earlier, she can't physically can't sleep in a house anymore because she hates the idea of sleeping in a house If Bo isn't in that house, in the same way that Bob Wells says he can't imagine living on an earth where his son isn't. And it's the same thing, Fern can't sleep in a house where Bo isn't. And then the second one for me is when she meets the young man, I think his name is Derek. But uh, she gave him a cigarette earlier on in the film, and then she sits down with him. And uh, they have a discussion about, and he says he's got a girlfriend and he sends her letters And she asked if he ever does poems and he says he doesn't know any. So she recites one of the poems that she gave in her um, wedding vows to Bo. And um, we spoke about this weirdly before we started recording. It was Shakespeare's 18th sonnet, um, Shall I Compare Thee to a Summer's Day, which is about keeping someone's memory alive even after they're dead. It's about someone is, you know, even though they're gone, as long as we remember them they will always be alive the closing lines of that poem are so long as men can breathe our eyes can see so long lives this and this gives life to thee and that's what Nomadland is about Nomadland is about Fern realizing that she doesn't need to hold on to Bo she can just remember him and as long as she remembers him then life is given to him and then she really gets pushed over the edge when she has a conversation with Bob Wells, that famous scene that is one of my favourite scenes ever, when he sits down and tells the real story of his son who killed himself several years prior. And, you know, that isn't acting, that's real. His reaction is real to that, which just makes it even better. And Mm -hmm. Fern realises, she says, like, what's remembered lives. And she thinks that she's been doing too much remembering, not enough living. And she realises that she can move on and still remember Bo and still have Bo with her but she doesn't need mm. to have his stuff she doesn't need to stay in empire she can move away she can drive away she can go and meet new people and have a new life and still right. remember Bo. and then that line that bob wells says see you down the road the famous line from nomadland now is is just perfect especially because you know it came after 2020 which was a year where we didn't see our relatives because of lockdown some people lost relatives because of lockdown and the line see you down the road just really stuck with me and it was a really perfect line and then to contrast the beginning of the film fern goes back to the same storage unit and sells everything without a second thought you know, the guy who yeah. owns the storage unit even says, like, Are you sure you don't need any of it? And she's like, no, I don't need any of it. I'm going. And then th- yeah. the ending is just perfect to me. She goes back to Empire and she goes back to the factory where Bo worked. And in the screenplay, there's a, a character in there and she has a conversation with the character and they cut that out completely. And I'm so glad that they did because the ending is wordless. There's no dialogue in it whatsoever. She goes right, back yeah. and she walks through the offices and the factory where Beau used to work she remembers all of these times and this is a final goodbye to beau in a weird way, although it's not a final goodbye. Um and she goes back to her house where she used to live with Beau and love with Beau and laugh with Beau, live, laugh, love. And uh, <laughs> and she stands at the kitchen sink and she looks out. And earlier on in the film, when she's talking to Dave's daughter or daughter-in-law, she's describing a house and she says that it's nothing special. And then she corrects herself and she goes, actually, no, it was special. It was something very yeah, special. Yeah, yeah. And she describes yeah. looking out and she says at the back of the house, there was this desert and it was endless and there was nothing in our way, nothing to stop us. And then at the end of the film, we see her staring out into that. And to me, that's the moment where she says to Bo, like, I'm going now and I'm not coming back. Yeah. I've sold all of your stuff, yeah. but I'll see you down the road. And she leaves yeah, yeah. and she walks out into the desert where she said earlier, nothing's in her way and nothing's in her way anymore. She's left that she's walked through the house really, and she's-
0: I really want to love this film, and <laughs>
1: You should, you should.
0: I, um, when I watched Lord of the Rings um, in the cinema this year, uh, which I love, Lord of the Rings is cracking. Um, uh, I watched it with my friend Angus, who's like a super Lord of the Rings nerd, and he like knows all of the lines, he knows all the details, and he <laughs> sits there, and he, he was because back it was then, and I, I, you know, my parents where I live with my my mum, it's in it's in Ely, which is, academy, which is in Cambridge, near backwater, um, and and there's like four people in the cinema. Quite often it was just us three in the cinema, and the whole time Angus is just sitting next to me going. Oh, this in the book, this is that. Oh, he's his brother. Oh, he does this, he does that. What I need is I need you sitting in the cinema next to me just telling me why this film is good. If you did that for the full two hours, I'm sure I'd give this a 10. I need you. I need a. I need a, a pocket, um, Lewis, to just yeah. give me all the reasons why this film is just so good. Because when you say it, I agree. It's so good. And just when I watched it, he just didn't do it. Um, and, you know, you say about all these things of, of feelings of... Um, if you don't stop thinking about someone, they don't stop existing, um, which, you know, it reminds you earlier in the film about that song that guy sings in the bar, the, 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 the friends in, in the, in your heart thing, that song, yeah. which obviously best original song of the year, obviously, um, <laughs> obviously is the sense, cent- obviously strongly inspired as well by the, obviously strongly inspired by the film Coco, which is about that concept. Um, <laughs> yeah, very much so. And, and, uh, and yeah, so I say on paper, I really should love this film. Uh just, and I'm going to give it, and there's not many films that I'm going to give a third go. I'm going to give a third go. at some IMAX. I'm really, and I'm really going to try and love it. And we'll come out the other side and see if I do. But it just didn't always connect with me. Uh, and perhaps I'm looking at it too surface level. I don't know. Um, these are three films, of course, uh, in which Francis McDormand uh, tries to stop someone shagging her. Because in the first film, <laughs> there's that Mike character. Yeah, that's it, we, the, the guy at the heat she the, he meets for dinner. The second film, Peter Dinkley, <laughs> she's trying to shag her own film. And the third film, uh, Davis, the third character, is clearly trying to get, get, in, get yeah. in there, but it's not working for him. <laughs> so, uh So that's what Frances McDormand... That's the, her niche, is playing characters, turning down shags. I mean, yeah,
1: you can't agree with that. That's really the... With, this, is the this isn't a Frances McDormand special. This is a Frances McDormand... Turning Down <laughs> Sex, Cinematic Universe.
0: <laughs> 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 Nomadland Cinematic Universe, let's start that up.
1: Honestly, I'd, I'd be down for a sequel.
0: <laughs> <laughs> how would you do a sequel, man? Oh, well, you just tell, you, the sequel's a documentary. Yeah. The real Nomadland.
1: You just keep going. You follow Fern. You know, she says she walked out of the house at the end, and then you see her drive away into the distance, and just follow
0: This time she's on a boat.
1: <laughs> Nomadland at sea. Yeah. Nomadland 2, um, with a vengeance
0: <laughs> Mermaidland <laughs> Okay <laughs> What do you rate Nomadland out of 10? Weirdly It's a
1: 10 out of 10 for me And I don't feel. I want to preface that By saying I, I don't remember the last time A film has made me feel this way It's not the kind of film that I like it really isn't but um earlier when we were talking about having really bad recency bias and my opinion changes really quickly right when i first watched Land, i was like wow 10 out of 10 masterpiece one of my favorite films ever and i expected it to change and it's been five months since i first saw it now and i feel exactly the same way it's one of my favorite films ever
0: Oh yeah, I remember on the podcast just after I watched Baby Teeth, I watched came on the podcast and I talked about it. And we did a like uh, f- five, six reviews that were five minutes long because we did three reviews each, and we hadn't seen the other person's three films. And I did Baby Teeth last, and I and I come out of here and that Jordan just basically me saying that it was decent. Over and I was like, this is one of the best films I've ever seen, but I keep saying for that the the film. Uh, it's probably I'm probably not gonna like it that much in a couple of days. It's just because I just saw it. Yeah, yeah. I probably don't think about anything. I have to stew it over. I have to see it again. I think the whole thing. I'm like, I love this, but I'm not gonna love this. And then the next week, you think that film is good. And then the week after, and the week after, and the week after, and you're like, this film actually is that good, which I'm assuming is the same thing. To you. you know, yeah. as time goes on, you like, wait, wait. a second. This actually is that good. Yeah. Um. I mean, I've rewatched so, yeah. it.
1: I've watched it. I think I've watched it five times now. And it's strange because even when I talk about it and I love it, it shouldn't be rewatchable. And I think for 99% of people, it won't be rewatchable. But for some reason, I could watch it over and over again and have no issue whatsoever. I have no idea what Chloe Zhao put in this film, but I am addicted to it and I can't get over it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to give out, yeah. So um, that's rewatchability. And I'll say for me... Oh yeah, sorry, i moved on. I'm going
1: to give it a... <laughs> a 10 out of 10, let's move on. 10 out of 10 from you as well.
0: <laughs> seven and a half? Seven and three quarters? Seven and three quarters? I really appreciate what it does. It's it's so good, but it just isn't for me. So I'm going to give it a seven and three quarters.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. Film is R- subjective. Rewatchability.
0: You know when... You know, when you play Mario, right, and you just keep fucking the level up, and you keep trying over and over, and it's infuriating. And you just keep going <laughs> until you finish it. This is me. I'm gonna keep watching this film until I fucking love it. But one day I will. So I'm gonna go watch it a third time on IMAX, and yes, I'll, that's what three. Really, it's a challenge. I don't know. Once I've completed it, maybe I'll watch it again. But until I love it, I'm gonna keep giving it a go. It dropped half a rating this time. <laughs> maybe next time it will go up. So I'm gonna, I'm I'm gonna, gonna keep come out to London and
1: watch it next year. And I'm gonna have, I'm gonna control the cinema, and I'm gonna pause it every thirty seconds to explain to you why it's perfect.
0: <laughs> I want there's like that twenty eight long, twenty eight hour long version of Psycho, which is like slowed down to like a frame a minute or something. It's like that's what it's gonna be. Yeah, it's gonna.
1: It's just me pausing it after every couple of words and going like, right, <laughs> this is why you're wrong.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, man of the match here for me.
1: This is easy. As the writer, director, producer, editor, Chloe Zhao.
0: Okay. If Chloe Zhao is four different people, what aspect would you pick? If, if, if Do you think, what is, is the strongest thing here? The directing? Ooh. The writing? The, it's going to be Chloe Zhao, but what, if you had to narrow it down to a single person, a single aspect of Chloe Zhao, if you had to go for that, what would you go for then? See, this is making it harder.
1: That is very difficult. It would either be writing or directing. That is Mm. very difficult. I'm going to go with directing because I think when you, I I said that again, I said this last week, uh, I think I've never seen a director who's so present in every scene. You can really feel that she is driving every decision in this film. Driving. On screen. Driving puns. This is technically, this is a racing movie. This is like Ford v Ferrari. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. It is fast and furious.
1: Yeah. But I think yeah. I I can feel her fingerprint on every frame and I can feel her impact on everything as a director. Okay. So I think her direction is impeccable. She swept all Private. of the awards for a reason.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I am going to give it um to somebody else. I think yeah. I think I'm I know who you're it. going to give it to. Who do you think I'm going to give it to? Yes, think, or you're right.
1: I think it's going to be Joshua James Richards.
0: I'm going to give this to Joshua James Richards. Yeah. This film is absolutely beautiful. So I'm happy. I'm happy to have it. And of course, you know, I've got to... I'm, And this is a Chloe Jow thing. But good on her for making sure that... Um, the Eternals is filmed in on film. Isn't that what you said last week, that she's like making sure it's filmed on, on film? I
1: think sequences are shot on 16mm film, but she's shooting it on location and she's not using green screen or CGI. Or anyway, near as much as a normal MCU film. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, but yeah, Joshua James Richards, for me, cinematography was the highlight of this film. Uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a pleasure to watch. It, could, it was, it could, even though it sent me to sleep, it sent me to see, sleep in a beautiful way. Um, <laughs> the
1: cinematography is excellent, so I can't disagree with you.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um. We're going over. We're we're over two hours. But I'm going to quickly throw in, even though I shouldn't. I really shouldn't do this. So people are disciplined than this. But can we just quickly talk about? No, I'm going to be disciplined. I'm going to cut that out of the podcast. I'm going to cut this out. No, I'm going to cut this out because this is going to take five minutes. Okay. So that wraps up our Francis McDormand special. So I'm just going to quickly uh, want you to rate the three films, uh, and then can you uh, like uh, rank the three films, and also rank the three Francis McDormand performances here?
1: So rate them, rank them, and then rank Francis McDormand.
0: I mean, I meant we already rated them. I meant rank them. Oh yeah,
1: rank them, and then rank Francis McDormand. So as yes. as films, it goes Nomadland, Fargo, Three Billboards. Um, in terms of Francis McDormand. I think it would have to be Three Billboards, Nomadland, Fargo.
0: Interesting. Uh, I would go for film-wise, Three Billboards. Um, Last next one's tough. I think I'll go Nomadland and then Fargo. Uh, And then um, I'll go with... Hmm, Because it's definitely Film Billboards first as well for for her. Yeah. Yeah. but then there's a very different performance in, in three billboards as uh, in, in Fargo to nomad land. And, you know, obviously she gets a lot more to work with in nomad land, but I think I, I like, I, I really do like the, the Marge character. and I think she's, she's very funny and I like the, um, the, the, the accent's funny. eh. It so is, I'm going to yeah. go for Fargo and then nomad land, but those two are very close, much like Fargo and nomad land are in my opinion as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, so that was our Francis McDormand special. That was funny. Um, I don't actually know exactly what we're going to be doing next week. Um, because we should have one more episode before cinemas come out. Um, so perhaps looking at something that comes out on Netflix this week. Uh, maybe the one I've Never Seen um i don't know maybe we'll do I, I wouldn't i can't really say anthony hopkins special because the father hasn't come out in the uk and we've already done science the labs on the podcast which was a long long time ago it was like two years ago now um we can but, just talk um, about nomadland again i'm happy to do that <laughs> <laughs> three we'll find weeks, something to do. three weeks
1: sure. in a row talking about
0: nomadland <laughs> yeah three weeks in a row we'll talking about nomadland um but i'll try and think of something up um or if anyone's got any suggestions i'm happy to listen um but yeah so um Thanks for watching, guys. Um, we've we've that's, that's the end of the day. We haven't got a quiz today because we're running over. over. Um, but yeah. Uh, so if you like the podcast, the best thing to do would be to give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Um If you want to uh, follow me on Twitter, you can do so uh, at Sam H Media and on Letterboxd at Sam Houston. If you want to follow Lewis on Twitter, you can do so at uh, LJWR Tweets. That's your new app, isn't it? You changed. Yes, it is. Um and if you want to follow the podcast, you can do so at Now Showing Film. Uh, if you want to contact the podcast directly, yeah, uh, we now pod at gmail.com. Uh, we are proud to be members of the Music City Driving Network. You can check out their website to see a load of, a whole host of great podcasts, including the likes of ours, the Music City Driving Podcast themselves, Film Optics, uh, a number of music podcasts, uh, or music podcasts uh, such as fifty years of music. Uh, they produce a lot of video content. They've produced a lot of good stuff recently. And of course if you like American football, there is the fantasy football round table podcast. Um and I think that pretty much wraps it all up. You can also check them out at MCDI C D I pod on twitter uh, i have recently launched a podcast uh, a side podcast with about doing marvel comics with josh webb who was a previous guest on the podcast you can find the podcast uh or at on, on spotify um at uh mini sized marvel and you can find him at fight on twist on twitter uh, where you can find the podcast there so we did uh, the infinity gauntlet last time and we're going to be doing craven's last hunt next week so tune into that if you like marvel comics uh, thank you very much uh, goodbye everyone
1: Bye, thank you for listening.